The Jacket, The Star Over By Jack London All my life I have had an awareness of other times and places. I have been aware of other persons in me. Oh, and trust me, so have you, my reader that is to be. Read back into your childhood, and this sense of awareness I speak of will be remembered as an experience of your childhood. You were then not fixed, not crystallized. You were plastic, a soul in flux, a consciousness and an identity in the process of forming, I, of forming and forgetting. You have forgotten much, my reader, and yet, as you read these lines, you remember dimly the hazy vistas of other times and places into which your child eyes peered. They seem dreams to you today. Yet, if they were dreams, dreamed then, whence the substance of them? Our dreams are grotesquely compounded of the things we know. The stuff of our sheerest dreams is the stuff of our experience. As a child, a wee child, you dreamed you fell great heights. You dreamed you flew through the air as things of the air fly. You were vexed by crawling spiders and many-legged creatures of the slime. You heard other voices, saw other faces nightmarishly familiar, and gazed upon sunrises and sunsets other than you know now, looking back, you ever looked upon. Very well. These child glimpses are of otherworldness, of other lightness, of things that you had never seen in this particular world of your particular life. Then whence? Other lives? Other worlds? Perhaps, when you have read all that I shall write, you will have received answers to the perplexities I have propounded to you, and that you yourself, ere you came to read me, propounded to yourself. Wordsworth knew. He was neither seer nor prophet but just ordinary man like you or any man. What he knew you know, any man knows. But he most aptly stated it in his passage that begins. Not in utter nakedness, not in entire forgetfulness. Ah, truly, shades of the prison house close about us, the newborn things, and all too soon do we forget. And yet, when we were newborn we did remember other times and places. We, helpless infants in arms or creeping quadruped-like on the floor, dreamed our dreams of air flight. Yes, and we endured the torment and torture of nightmare fears of dim and monstrous things. We newborn infants, without experience, were born with fear, with memory of fear, and memory is experience. As for myself, at the beginnings of my vocabulary, at so tender a period that I still made hunger noises and sleep noises, yet even then did I know that I had been a star over. Yes, I, whose lips had never lisped the word. King, remembered that I had once been the son of a king. More, I remembered that once I had been a slave and a son of a slave, and worn an iron collar round my neck. Still more, when I was three, and four, and five years of age, I was not yet I. I was a mere becoming, a flux of spirit not yet cooled solid in the mold of my particular flesh and time and place. In that period all that I had ever been in ten thousand lives before strove in me and troubled the flux of me, in the effort to incorporate itself in me and become me. Silly, isn't it? But remember, my reader, whom I hope to have travel far with me through time and space, remember, please, my reader, that I have thought much on these matters, that through bloody nights and sweats of dark that lasted years long, I have been alone with my many selves to consult and contemplate my many selves. I have gone through the hells of all existences to bring you news which you will share with me in a casual comfortable hour over my printed page. So, to return, I say, during the ages of three and four and five, I was not yet I. I was merely becoming as I took form in the mold of my body, 
and all the mighty, indestructible past wrought in the mixture of me to determine what the form of that becoming would be. It was not my voice that cried out in the night in fear of things known, which I, forsooth, did not and could not know. The same with my childish angers, my loves, and my laughters. Other voices screamed through my voice, the voices of men and women aforetime, of all shadowy hosts of progenitors. And the snarl of my anger was blended with the snarls of beasts more ancient than the mountains, and the vocal madness of my child hysteria, with all the red of its wrath, was cored with the insensate, stupid cries of beasts pre-Adamic and progeologic in time. And there the secret is out. The red wrath. It has undone me in this, my present life. Because of it, a few short weeks hence, I shall be led from this cell to a high place with unstable flooring, graced above by a well-stretched rope, and there they will hang me by the neck until I am dead. The red wrath always has undone me in all my lives, for the red wrath is my disastrous catastrophic heritage from the time of the slimy things ere the world was prime. It is time that I introduce myself. I am neither fool nor lunatic. I want you to know that, in order that you will believe the things I shall tell you. I am Daryl Standing. Some few of you who read this will know me immediately. But to the majority, who are bound to be strangers, let me expose it myself. Eight years ago I was professor of agronomics in the College of Agriculture of the University of California. Eight years ago the sleepy little university town of Berkeley was shocked by the murder of Professor Haskell in one of the laboratories of the mining building. Daryl Standing was the murderer. I am Daryl Standing. I was caught red-handed. Now the right and the wrong of this affair with Professor Haskell I shall not discuss. It was purely a private matter. The point is that in a surge of anger, obsessed by that catastrophic red wrath that has cursed me down the ages, I killed my fellow professor. The court records show that I did, and for once, I agree with the court records. No, I am not to be hanged for his murder. I received a life sentence for my punishment. I was thirty-six years of age at the time. I am now forty-four years old. I have spent the eight intervening years in the California State Prison of San Quentin. Five of these years I spent in the dark. Solitary confinement, they call it. Men who endure it call it living death. But through these five years of death in life I managed to attain freedoms such as few men have ever known. Closest confined to prisoners, not only did I range the world, but I range time. They who immured me for petty years gave to me, all unwittingly, the largest of centuries. Truly, thanks to Ed Morell, I have had five years of star-roving. But Ed Morell is another story. I shall tell you about him a little later. I have so much to tell I scarce know how to begin. Well, a beginning. I was born on a quarter section in Minnesota. My mother was the daughter of an immigrant Swede. Her name was Hilda Tonneson. My father was Chauncey Standing, of old American stock. He traced back to Alfred Standing, an indentured servant, or slave if you please, who was transported from England to the Virginia plantations in the days that were even old when the youthful Washington went a-surveying in the Pennsylvania wilderness. A son of Alfred Standing fought in the War of the Revolution, a grandson, in the War of 1812. There have been no wars since in which the Standings have not been represented. I, the last of the Standings, dying soon without issue, fought as a common soldier in the Philippines, in our latest war, and to do so I resigned, in the full early ripeness of career, 
my professorship in the University of Nebraska. Good heavens, when I so resigned I was headed for the deanship of the College of Agriculture in that university. I, the starover, the red-blooded adventurer, the vagabondish cane of the centuries, the militant priest of remotest times, the moon-dreaming poet of ages forgotten and today unrecorded in man's history of man. And here I am, my hands dyed red in murderer's row, in the state prison of Folsom, awaiting the day decreed by the machinery of state when the servants of the state will lead me away into what they fondly believe is the dark, the dark they fear, the dark that gives them fearsome and superstitious fancies, the dark that drives them, driveling and yammering, to the altars of their fear-created, anthropomorphic gods. No, I shall never be dean of any college of agriculture. And yet I knew agriculture. It was my profession. I was born to it, reared to it, trained to it, and I was a master of it. It was my genius. I can pick the high-percentage butterfat cow with my eye and let the babcock tester prove the wisdom of my eye. I can look, not at land, but at landscape, and pronounce the virtues and the shortcomings of the soil. Litmus paper is not necessary when I determine a soil to be acid or alkali. I repeat, farm husbandry, in its highest scientific terms, was my genius, and is my genius. And yet the state, which includes all the citizens of the state, believes that it can blot out this wisdom of mine in the final dark by means of a rope about my neck and the abruptive jerk of gravitation, this wisdom of mine that was incubated through the millenniums, and that was well hatched ere the farmed fields of Troy were ever pastured by the flocks of nomad shepherds. Corn? Who else knows corn? There is my demonstration at Wista, whereby I increased the annual corn yield of every county in Iowa by half a million dollars. This is history. Many a farmer, riding in his motor car today, knows who made possible that motor car. Many a sweet-bosomed girl and bright-browed boy, poring over high school textbooks, little dreams that I made that higher education possible by my corn demonstration at Wista. And farm management. I know the waste of superfluous motion without studying a moving picture record of it, whether it be farm or farmhand, the layout of buildings or the layout of the farmhand's labor. There is my handbook and tables on the subject. Beyond the shadow of any doubt, at this present moment, a hundred thousand farmers are nodding their brows over its spread pages ere they tap out their final pipe and go to bed. And yet, so far was I beyond my tables, that all I needed was a mere look at a man to know his predispositions, his coordinations, and the index fraction of his motion wastage. And here I must close this first chapter of my narrative. It is nine o'clock, and in murderer's road that means lights out. Even now, I hear the soft tread of the gumshoot guard as he comes to censure me for my coal lamp still burning. As if the mere living could censure the doomed to die. Chapter 2 I am Daryl Standing. They are going to take me out and hang me pretty soon. In the meantime I say my say, and write in these pages of the other times and places. After my sentence, I came to spend the rest of my natural life in the prison of San Quentin. I proved incorrigible. An incorrigible is a terrible human being, at least such is the connotation of incorrigible in prison psychology. I became an incorrigible because I abhorred waste motion. The prison, like all prisons, was a scandal and an affront of waste motion. They put me in the jute mill. The criminality of wastefulness irritated me. Why should it not? 
Elimination of waste motion was my speciality. Before the invention of steam or steam-driven looms three thousand years before, I had rotted in prison in old Babylon. And trust me, I speak the truth when I say that in that ancient day we prisoners wove more efficiently on hand looms than did the prisoners in the steam-powered loom rooms of San Quentin. The crime of waste was abhorrent. I rebelled. I tried to show the guards a score or so of more efficient ways. I was reported. I was given the dungeon and the starvation of light and food. I emerged and tried to work in the chaos of inefficiency of the loom rooms. I rebelled. I was given the dungeon, plus the straitjacket. I was spread-eagled, and thumbed up, and privily beaten by the stupid guards whose totality of intelligence was only just sufficient to show them that I was different from them and not so stupid. Two years of this witless persecution I endured. It is terrible for a man to be tied down and gnawed by rats. The stupid brutes of guards were rats, and they gnawed the intelligence of me, gnawed all the fine nerves of the quick of me and of the consciousness of me. And I, who in my past have been a most valiant fighter, in this present life was no fighter at all. I was a farmer, an agriculturist, a desk-tied professor, a laboratory slave, interested only in the soil and the increase of the productiveness of the soil. I fought in the Philippines because it was the tradition of the standings to fight. I had no aptitude for fighting. It was all too ridiculous, the introducing of disruptive foreign substances into the bodies of little black men folk. It was laughable to behold science prostituting all the might of its achievement and the wit of its inventors to the violent introducing of foreign substances into the bodies of black folk. As I say, in obedience to the tradition of the standings I went to war and found that I had no aptitude for war. So did my officers find me out, because they made me a quartermaster's clerk, and as a clerk, at a desk, I fought through the Spanish-American War. So it was not because I was a fighter, but because I was a thinker, that I was enraged by the motion wastage of the loom rooms and was persecuted by the guards into becoming an incorrigible. One's brain worked, and I was punished for its working. As I told Warden Atherton, when my incorrigibility had become so notorious that he had me in on the carpet in his private office to plead with me, as I told him then, It is so absurd, my dear Warden, to think that your rat-throttlers of guards can shake out of my brain the things that are clear and definite in my brain. The whole organization of this prison is stupid. You are a politician. You can weave the political pull of San Francisco saloon men and ward healers into a position of graft such as this one you occupy, but you can't weave jute. Your loom rooms are fifty years behind the times. But why continue the tirade, for tirade it was? I showed him what a fool he was, and as a result he decided that I was a hopeless incorrigible. Give a dog a bad name, you know the saw. Very well. Warden Atherton gave the final sanction to the badness of my name. I was fair game. More than one convict's dereliction was shunted off on me, and was paid for by me in the dungeon on bread and water, or in being triced up by the thumbs on my tiptoes for long hours, each hour of which was longer than any life I have ever lived. Intelligent men are cruel. Stupid men are monstrously cruel. The guards and the men over me, from the warden down, were stupid monsters. Listen, and you shall learn what they did to me. There was a poet in the prison, a convict, a weak-shinned, broad-browed, degenerate poet. He was a forger. He was a coward. He was a snitcher.
he was a stool. Strange words for a professor of agronomics to use in writing, but a professor of agronomics may well learn strange words when pent in prison for the term of his natural life. This poet forger's name was Cecil Winwood. He had had prior convictions, and yet, because he was a sniveling cur of a yellow dog, his last sentence had been only for seven years. Good credits would materially reduce this time. My time was life. Yet this miserable degenerate, in order to gain several short years of liberty for himself, succeeded in adding a fair portion of eternity to my own lifetime term. I shall tell what happened the other way around, for it was only after a weary period that I learned. This Cecil Winwood, in order to curry favor with the captain of the yard, and thence the warden, the prison directors, the board of pardons, and the governor of California, framed up a prison break. Now note three things. A. Cecil Winwood was so detested by his fellow convicts that they would not have permitted him to bed an ounce of Bull Durham on a bedbug race, and bedbug racing was a great sport with the convicts. B. I was the dog that had been given a bad name. C. For his frame-up, Cecil Winwood needed the dogs with bad names, the lifetimers, the desperate ones, the incorrigibles. But the lifers detested Cecil Winwood, and when he approached them with his plan of a wholesale prison break, they laughed at him and turned away with curses for the stool that he was. But he fooled them in the end, forty of the bitterest wise ones in the pen. He approached them again and again. He told of his power in the prison by virtue of his being trusty in the warden's office, and because of the fact that he had the run of the dispensary. Show me, said Long Bill Hodge, a mountaineer doing life for train robbery and whose whole soul for years had been bent on escaping in order to kill the companion in robbery who had turned state's evidence on him. Cecil Winwood accepted the test. He claimed that he could dope the guards the night of the break. Talk is cheap, said Long Bill Hodge. What we want is the goods. Dope one of the guards tonight. There's Barnum. He's no good. He beat up that crazy chink yesterday in Bug House Alley, when he was off duty, too. He's on the night watch. Dope him tonight and make him lose his job. Show me, and we'll talk business with you. All this long bill told me in the dungeons afterward. Cecil Winwood demurred against the immediacy of the demonstration. He claimed that he must have time in which to steal the dope from the dispensary. They gave him the time, and a week later he announced that he was ready. Forty hard-bitten lifers waited for the guard Barnum to go to sleep on his shift. And Barnum did. He was found asleep, and he was discharged for sleeping on duty. Of course, that convinced the lifers. But there was the captain of the yard to convince. To him, daily, Cecil Winwood was reporting the progress of the break, all fancied and fabricated in his own imagination. The captain of the yard demanded to be shown. Winwood showed him, and the full details of the showing I did not learn until a year afterward. So slowly do the secrets of prison intrigue leak out. Winwood said that the forty men in the break, in whose confidence he was, had already such power in the prison that they were about to begin smuggling in automatic pistols by means of the guards they had bought up. Show me, the captain of the yard must have demanded, and the forger poet showed him. In the bakery, night work was a regular thing. One of the convicts, a baker, was on the first night shift. He was a stool of the captain of the yard, and Winwood knew it. Tonight, he told the captain. Summerface will bring in a dozen forty-four automatics. 
On his next time off he'll bring in the ammunition. But tonight he'll turn the automatics over to me in the bakery. You've got a good stool there. He'll make you his report tomorrow. Now Summerface was a strapping figure of a bucolic guard who hailed from Humboldt County. He was a simple-minded, good-natured dolt, and not above earning an honest dollar by smuggling in tobacco for the convicts. On that night, returning from a trip to San Francisco, he brought in with him fifteen pounds of prime cigarette tobacco. He had done this before, and delivered the stuff to Cecil Winwood. So, on that particular night, he, all unwitting, turned the stuff over to Winwood in the bakery. It was a big, solid, paper-wrapped bundle of innocent tobacco. The stool baker, from concealment, saw the package delivered to Winwood, and so reported to the captain of the yard next morning. But in the meantime the poet-forger's too lively imagination ran away with him. He was guilty of a slip that gave me five years of solitary confinement, and that placed me in this condemned cell in which I now write. And all the time I knew nothing about it. I did not even know of the break he had inveigled the forty lifers into planning. I knew nothing absolutely nothing. And the rest knew little. The lifers did not know he was giving them the cross. The captain of the yard did not know that the cross was being worked on him. Summerface was the most innocent of all. At the worst, his conscience could have accused him only of smuggling in some harmless tobacco. And now to the stupid, silly, melodramatic slip of Cecil Winwood. Next morning, when he encountered the captain of the yard, he was triumphant. His imagination took the bit in its teeth. Well, the stuff came in all right as you said, the captain of the yard remarked. And enough of it to blow half the prison sky high, Winwood corroborated. Enough of what? the captain demanded. Dynamite and detonators, the fool rattled on. Thirty-five pounds of it. Your stool saw Summerface pass it over to me. And right there the captain of the yard must have nearly died. I can actually sympathize with him. Thirty-five pounds of dynamite loose in the prison. They say that Captain Jamie, that was his nickname, sat down and held his head in his hands. Where is it now? He cried. I want it. Take me to it at once. And right there Cecil Winwood saw his mistake. I planted it. He lied, for he was compelled to lie because, being merely tobacco and small packages— it was long since distributed among the convicts along the customary channels. Very well, said Captain Jamie, getting himself in hand. Lead me to it at once. But there was no plant of high explosives to lead him to. The thing did not exist, had never existed save in the imagination of the wretched Winwood. In a large prison like San Quentin there are always hiding places for things. And as Cecil Winwood led Captain Jamie he must have done some rapid thinking. As Captain Jamie testified before the board of directors, and as Winwood also so testified, on the way to the hiding place Winwood said that he and I had planted the powder together. And I, just released from five days in the dungeons and eighty hours in the jacket, I, whom even the stupid guards could see was too weak to work in the loom room, I, who had been given the day off to recuperate, from too terrible punishment— I was named as the one who had helped hide the non-existent thirty-five pounds of high explosive. Winwood led Captain Jamie to the alleged hiding place. Of course they found no dynamite in it. My God! Winwood lied. Standing has given me the cross. He's lifted the plant and stowed it somewhere else. 
the captain of the yard said more emphatic things than, My God! Also, on the spur of the moment, but cold-bloodedly, he took Winwood into his own private office, lipped the doors, and beat him up frightfully, all of which came out before the board of directors. But that was afterward. In the meantime, even while he took his beating, Winwood swore by the truth of what he had told. What was Captain Jamie to do? He was convinced that thirty-five pounds of dynamite were loose in the prison and that forty desperate lifers were ready for a break. Oh, he had Summerface in on the carpet, and although Summerface insisted the package contained tobacco, Winwood swore it was dynamite and was believed. At this stage I enter, or rather, I depart, for they took me away out of the sunshine and the light of day to the dungeons, and in the dungeons and in the solitary cells, out of the sunshine and the light of day, I rotted for five years. I was puzzled. I had only just been released from the dungeons, and was lying pain-racked in my customary cell, when they took me back to the dungeon. No, said Winwood to Captain Jamie. Though we don't know where it is, the dynamite is safe. Standing is the only man who does know, and he can't pass the word out from the dungeon. The men are ready to make the break. We can catch them red-handed. It is up to me to set the time. I'll tell them two o'clock tonight and tell them that, with the guards doped, I'll unlock their cells and give them their automatics. If, at two o'clock tonight, you don't catch the forty I shall name with their clothes on and wide awake, then, Captain, you can give me solitary for the rest of my sentence. And with standing and the forty tight in the dungeons, we'll have all the time in the world to locate the dynamite. If we have to tear the prison down stone by stone, Captain Jamie added valiantly, that was six years ago. In all the intervening time they have never found that non-existent explosive, and they have turned the prison upside down a thousand times in searching for it. Nevertheless, to his last day in office Warden Atherton believed in the existence of that dynamite. Captain Jamie, who is still captain of the yard, believes to this day that the dynamite is somewhere in the prison. Only yesterday, he came all the way up from San Quentin to Folsom to make one more effort to get me to reveal the hiding place. I know he will never breathe easy until they swing me off. Chapter 3 All that day I lay in the dungeon cudgeling my brains for the reason of this new and inexplicable punishment. All I could conclude was that some stool had lied an infraction of the rules on me in order to curry favor with the guards. Meanwhile Captain Jamie fretted his head off and prepared for the night while Winwood passed the word along to the forty lifers to be ready for the break. And two hours after midnight every guard in the prison was under orders. This included the day shift, which should have been asleep. When two o'clock came, they rushed the cells occupied by the forty. The rush was simultaneous. The cells were opened at the same moment, and without exception the men named by Winwood were found out of their bunks, fully dressed, and crouching just inside their doors. Of course, this was verification absolute of all the fabric of lies that the poet-forger had spun for Captain Jamie. The forty lifers were caught in red-handed readiness for the break. What if they did unite, afterward, in averring that the break had been planned by Winwood? The prison board of directors believed, to a man, that the forty lied in an effort to save themselves. The board of pardons likewise believed, for, ere three months were up, Cecil Winwood, forger and poet, most despicable of men, was pardoned out. Oh, well, the stir, or the pen, as they call it in convict argot, is a training school for philosophy. 
No inmate can survive years of it without having had burst for him his fondest illusions and fairest metaphysical bubbles. Truth lives, we are taught, murder will out. Well, this is a demonstration that murder does not always come out. The captain of the yard, the late warden Atherton, the prison board of directors to a man, all believe, right now, in the existence of that dynamite that never existed save in the slippery-geared and all-too-accelerated brain of the degenerate forger and poet, Cecil Winwood. And Cecil Winwood still lives, while I, of all men concerned, the utterest, absolutist, innocentest, go to the scaffold in a few short weeks. And now I must tell how entered the forty lifers upon my dungeon stillness. I was asleep when the outer door to the corridor of dungeons clanged open and aroused me. Some poor devil, was my thought, and my next thought was that he was surely getting his, as I listened to the scuffling of feet, the dull impact of blows on flesh, the sudden cries of pain, the filth of curses, and the sounds of dragging bodies. For, you see, every man was manhandled all the length of the way. Dungeon door after dungeon door clanged open, and body after body was thrust in, flung in, or dragged in and continually more groups of guards arrived with more beaten convicts who still were being beaten, and more dungeon doors were opened to receive the bleeding frames of men who were guilty of yearning after freedom. Yes, as I look back upon it, a man must be greatly a philosopher to survive the continual impact of such brutish experiences through the years and years. I am such a philosopher. I have endured eight years of their torment, and now, in the end, failing to get rid of me in all other ways, they have invoked the machinery of state to put a rope around my neck and shut off my breath by the weight of my body. Oh, I know how the experts give expert judgment that the fall through the trap breaks the victim's neck. And the victims, like Shakespeare's traveler, never return to testify to the contrary. But we who have lived in the stir know of the cases that are hushed in the prison crypts, where the victim's necks are not broken. It is a funny thing, this hanging of a man. I have never seen a hanging— but I have been told by eyewitnesses the details of a dozen hangings so that I know what will happen to me. Standing on the trap, leg manacled and arm manacled, the knot against the neck, the black cap drawn, they will drop me down until the momentum of my descending weight is fetched up abruptly short by the tautening of the rope. Then the doctors will group around me, and one will relieve another in successive turns and standing on a stool, his arms passed around me to keep me from swinging like a pendulum his ear pressed close to my chest, while he counts my fading heartbeats. Sometimes twenty minutes elapse after the trap is sprung ere the heart stops beating. Oh, trust me, they make most scientifically sure that a man is dead once they get him on a rope. I still wander aside from my narrative to ask a question or two of society. I have a right so to wander and so to question, for in a little while they are going to take me out and do this thing to me. If the neck of the victim be broken by the alleged shrewd arrangement of knot and noose, and by the alleged shrewd calculation of the weight of the victim and the length of slack, then why do they manacle the arms of the victim? Society, as a whole, is unable to answer this question. But I know why. So does any amateur who ever engaged in a lynching bee and saw the victim throw up his hands, clutch the rope, and ease the throttle of the noose about his neck so that he might breathe. Another question I will ask of the smug, cotton-wool member of society, whose soul has never strayed to the red hells. Why do they put the black cap over the head and the face of the victim ere they drop him through the trap? 
Please remember that in a short while they will put that black cap over my head. So I have a right to ask. Do they, your hangdogs, O oh, smug citizen, do these your hangdogs fear to gaze upon the facial horror of the horror they perpetrate for you and ours and at your behest? Please remember that I am not asking this question in the twelve hundredth year after Christ, nor in the time of Christ, nor in the twelve hundredth year before Christ. I, who am to be hanged this year, the nineteen hundred and thirteenth after Christ, ask these questions of you who are assumably Christ's followers, of you whose hangdogs are going to take me out and hide my face under a black cloth because they dare not look upon the horror they do to me while I yet live. And now back to the situation in the dungeons. When the last guard departed and the outer door clanged shut, all the forty beaten, disappointed men began to talk and ask questions. But almost immediately, roaring like a bull in order to be heard, Skysel Jack, a giant sailor of a lifer, ordered silence while a census could be taken. The dungeons were full, and dungeon by dungeon, an order of dungeons shouted out its quota to the roll call. Thus, every dungeon was accounted for as occupied by trusted convicts, so that there was no opportunity for a stool to be hidden away and listening. Of me, only, were the convicts dubious, for I was the one man who had not been in the plot. They put me through a searching examination. I could but tell them how I had just emerged from dungeon and jacket in the morning, and without rhyme or reason, so far as I could discover, had been put back in the dungeon after being out only several hours. My record as an incorrigible was in my favor, and soon they began to talk. As I lay there and listened, for the first time I learned of the break that had been a-hatching. Who had squealed? Was there one quest, and throughout the night the quest was pursued. The quest for Cecil Winwood was vain, and the suspicion against him was general. There's only one thing, lads. Skysel Jack finally said. It'll soon be morning, and then they'll take us out and give us bloody hell. We were caught dead to rights with our clothes on. Winwood crossed us and squealed. They're going to get us out one by one and mess us up. There's forty of us. Any lion's bound to be found out. So each lad, when they sweat him, just tells the truth, the whole truth, so help him God. And there, in that dark hole of man's inhumanity, from dungeon cell to dungeon cell, their mouths against the gratings, the two-score lifers solemnly pledged themselves before God to tell the truth. Little good did their truth-telling do them. At nine o'clock the guards, paid brevos of the smug citizens who constitute the state, full of meat and sleep, were upon us. Not only had we had no breakfast, but we had had no water. And beaten men are prone to feverishness. I wonder, my reader, if you can glimpse or guess the faintest connotation of a man beaten. Beat up, we prisoners call it. But no, I shall not tell you. Let it suffice to know that these beaten, feverish men lay seven hours without water. At nine the guards arrived. There were not many of them. There was no need for many, because they unlocked only one dungeon at a time. They were equipped with pick handles, a handy tool for the disciplining of a helpless man. One dungeon at a time, and dungeon by dungeon, they messed and pulped the lifers. They were impartial. I received the same pulping as the rest. And this was merely the beginning, the preliminary to the examination each man was to undergo alone in the presence of the paid brutes of the state. It was the forecast to each man of what each man might expect in Inquisition Hall. I have been through most of the red hells of prison life, but worst of all, 
far worse than what they intend to do with me in a short while, was the particular hell of the dungeons in the days that followed. Long Bill Hodge, the hard-bitten mountaineer, was the first man interrogated. He came back two hours later, or rather, they conveyed him back and threw him on the stone of his dungeon floor. They then took away Luigi Palazzo, a San Francisco hoodlum, the first native generation of Italian parentage, who jeered and sneered at them and challenged them to wreak their worst upon him. It was some time before Long Bill Hodge mastered his pain sufficiently to be coherent. What about this dynamite? he demanded. Who knows anything about dynamite? And of course nobody knew, although it had been the burden of the interrogation put to him. Luigi Palazzo came back in a little less than two hours, and he came back a wreck that babbled in delirium and could give no answer to the questions showered upon him along the echoing corridor of dungeons by the men who were yet to get what he had got, and who desired greatly to know what things had been done to him and what interrogations had been put to him. Twice again in the next forty-eight hours Luigi was taken out and interrogated. After that, a gibbering imbecile, he went to live in Bug House Alley. He has a strong constitution. His shoulders are broad, his nostrils wide, his chest is deep, his blood is pure. He will continue to gibber in Bug House Alley long after I have swung off and escaped the torment of the penitentiaries of California. Man after man was taken away, one at a time, and the wrecks of men were brought back, one by one, to rave and howl in the darkness. And as I lay there and listened to the moaning and the groaning, and all the idle chattering of pain-addled wits, somehow, vaguely reminiscent, it seemed to me that somewhere, sometime, I had sat in a high place, callous and proud, and listened to a similar chorus of moaning and groaning. Afterwards, as you shall learn, I identified this reminiscence and knew that the moaning and the groaning was of the sweep slaves manacled to their benches, which I heard from above, on the poop, a soldier passenger on a galley of old Rome. That was when I sailed for Alexandria, a captain of men, on my way to Jerusalem. But that is a story I shall tell you later. In the meanwhile. Chapter 4. In the meanwhile obtained the horror of the dungeons, after the discovery of the plot to break prison. And never, during those eternal hours of waiting, was it absent from my consciousness that I should follow these other convicts out, endure the hells of inquisition they endured and be brought back a wreck and flung on the stone floor of my stone-walled, iron-door dungeon. They came for me. Ungraciously and ungently, with blow and curse, they hailed me forth, and I faced Captain Jamie and Warden Atherton, themselves arrayed with the strength of half a dozen state-bought, tax-paid brutes of guards who lingered in the room to do any bidding. But they were not needed. Sit down, said Warden Atherton, indicating a stout armchair. I, beaten and sore, without water for a night long and a day long, faint with hunger, weak from a beating that had been added to five days in the dungeon and eighty hours in the jacket, oppressed by the calamity of human fate, apprehensive of what was to happen to me from what I had seen happen to the others, I, a wavering waif of a human man and an erstwhile professor of agronomy in a quiet college town, I hesitated to accept the invitation to sit down. Warden Atherton was a large man and a very powerful man. His hands flashed out to a grip on my shoulders. I was a straw in his strength. He lifted me clear of the floor and crashed me down in the chair. No, he said while I gasped and swallowed my pain. Tell me all about it, standing. Spit it out, all of it, if you know what's healthy for you. 
I don't know anything about what has happened. I began. That was as far as I got. With a growl and a leap he was upon me. Again he lifted me in the air and crashed me down into the chair. No nonsense standing, he warned. Make a clean breast of it. Where is the dynamite? I don't know anything of any dynamite, I protested. Once again I was lifted and smashed back into the chair. I have endured tortures of various sorts, but when I reflect upon them in the quietness of these my last days, I am confident that no other torture was quite the equal of that chair torture. By my body that stout chair was battered out of any semblance of a chair. Another chair was brought, and in time that chair was demolished. But more chairs were brought, and the eternal questioning about the dynamite went on. When Warden Atherton grew tired, Captain Jamie relieved him, and then the guard Monaghan took Captain Jamie's place in smashing me down into the chair. And always it was dynamite, dynamite. Where is the dynamite? And there was no dynamite. Why, toward the last I would have given a large portion of my immortal soul for a few pounds of dynamite to which I could confess. I do not know how many chairs were broken by my body. I fainted times without number, and toward the last the whole thing became nightmarish. I was half carried, half shoved and dragged back to the dark. There, when I became conscious, I found a stool in my dungeon. He was a pallid-faced, little dope fiend of a short-timer who would do anything to obtain the drug. As soon as I recognized him I crawled to the grating and shouted out along the corridor. There is a stool in with me, fellows. He's Ignatius Irvine. Watch out what you say. The outburst of imprecations that went up would have shaken the fortitude of a braver man than Ignatius Irvine. He was pitiful in his terror, while all about him, roaring like beasts, the pain-racked lifers told him what awful things they would do to him in the years that were to come. Had there been secrets, the presence of a stool in the dungeons would have kept the men quiet. As it was, having all sworn to tell the truth, they talked openly before Ignatius Irvine. The one great puzzle was the dynamite, of which they were as much in the dark as was I. They appealed to me. If I knew anything about the dynamite they begged me to confess it and save them all from further misery. And I could tell them only the truth, that I knew of no dynamite. One thing the stool told me, before the guards removed him, showed how serious was this matter of the dynamite. Of course, I passed the word along, which was that not a wheel had turned in the prison all day. The thousands of convict workers had remained locked in their cells, and the outlook was that not one of the various prison factories would be operated again until after the discovery of some dynamite that somebody had hidden somewhere in the prison. And ever the examination went on. Ever, one at a time, convicts were dragged away and dragged or carried back again. They reported that Warden Atherton and Captain Jamie, exhausted by their efforts, relieved each other every two hours. While one slept, the other examined. And they slept in their clothes in the very room in which strong man after strong man was being broken. And hour by hour, in the dark dungeons, our madness of torment grew. Oh, trust me as one who knows, hanging is an easy thing compared with the way live men may be hurt in all the life of them and still live. I, too, suffered equally with them from pain and thirst, but added to my suffering was the fact that I remained conscious to the sufferings of the others. I had been an incorrigible for two years, and my nerves and brain were hardened to suffering. It is a frightful thing to see a strong man broken. About me, at the one time, 
were forty strong men being broken. Ever the cry for water went up, and the place became lunatic with the crying, sobbing, babbling and raving of men in delirium. Don't you see? Our truth, the very truth we told, was our damnation. When forty men told the same things with such unanimity, Warden Atherton and Captain Jamie could only conclude that the testimony was a memorized lie which each of the forty rattled off parrot-like. From the standpoint of the authorities, their situation was as desperate as ours. As I learned afterward, the board of prison directors had been summoned by telegraph, and two companies of state militia were being rushed to the prison. It was winter weather, and the frost is sometimes shrewd even in a California winter. We had no blankets in the dungeons. Please know that it is very cold to stretch bruised human flesh on frosty stone. In the end they did give us water. Jeering and cursing us, the guards ran in the fire hoses and played the fierce streams on us, dungeon by dungeon, hour after hour, until our bruised flesh was battered all anew by the violence with which the water smote us, until we stood knee-deep in the water which we had raved for and for which now we raved to cease. I shall skip the rest of what happened in the dungeons. In passing I shall merely state that no one of those forty lifers was ever the same again. Luigi Palazzo never recovered his reason. Long Bill Hodge slowly lost his sanity, so that a year later he, too, went to live in Bug House Alley. Oh, and others followed Hodge and Palazzo, and others, whose physical stamina had been impaired, fell victims to prison tuberculosis. Fully twenty-five percent of the forty have died in the succeeding six years. After my five years in solitary, when they took me away from San Quentin for my trial, I saw Skysel Jack. I could see little, for I was blinking in the sunshine like a bat, after five years of darkness, yet I saw enough of Skysel Jack to pain my heart. It was in crossing the prison yard that I saw him. His hair had turned white. He was prematurely old. His chest had caved in. His cheeks were sunken. His hands shook as with palsy. He tottered as he walked, and his eyes blurred with tears as he recognized me, for I, too, was a sad wreck of what had once been a man. I weighed eighty-seven pounds. My hair, streaked with gray, was a five-year's growth, as were my beard and mustache. And I, too, tottered as I walked so that the guards helped to lead me across that sunblinding patch of yard. And Skysel Jack and I peered and knew each other under the wreckage. Men such as he are privileged— even in a prison, so that he dared an infraction of the rules by speaking to me in a cracked and quavering voice. You're a good one, standing, he cackled. You never squealed. But I never knew, Jack. I whispered back. I was compelled to whisper, for five years of disuse had well nigh lost me my voice. I don't think there ever was any dynamite. That's right, he cackled, nodding his head childishly. Stick with it. Don't ever let him know. You're a good one. I take my hat off to you, standing. You never squealed. And the guards led me on, and that was the last I saw of Skysel Jack. It was plain that even he had become a believer in the dynamite myth. Twice they had me before the full board of directors. I was alternately bullied and cajoled. Their attitude resolved itself into two propositions. If I delivered up the dynamite, they would give me a nominal punishment of thirty days in the dungeon and then make me a trustee in the prison library. If I persisted in my stubbornness and did not yield up the dynamite then they would put me in solitary for the rest of my sentence. 
In my case, being a life prisoner, this was tantamount to condemning me to solitary confinement for life. Oh no, California is civilized. There is no such law on the statute books. It is a cruel and unusual punishment, and no modern state would be guilty of such a law. Nevertheless, in the history of California I am the third man who has been condemned for life to solitary confinement. The other two were Jake Oppenheimer and Ed Morell. I shall tell you about them soon, for I rotted with them for years in the cells of silence. Oh, another thing. They are going to take me out and hang me in a little while. No, not for killing Professor Haskell. I got life imprisonment for that. They are going to take me out and hang me because I was found guilty of assault and battery. And this is not prison discipline. It is law, and as law it will be found in the criminal statutes. I believe I made a man's nose bleed. I never saw it bleed, but that was the evidence. Thurston, his name was. He was a guard at San Quentin. He weighed 170 pounds and was in good health. I weighed under 90 pounds, was blind as a bat from the long darkness, and had been so long pent in narrow walls that I was made dizzy by large open spaces. Really, mine was a well-defined case of incipient agoraphobia. As I quickly learned that day I escaped from solitary and punched the guard Thurston on the nose. I struck him on the nose and made it bleed when he got in my way and tried to catch hold of me. And so they are going to hang me. It is the written law of the state of California that a lifetimer like me is guilty of a capital crime when he strikes a prison guard like Thurston. Surely, he could not have been inconvenienced more than half an hour by that bleeding nose, and yet they are going to hang me for it. And see, this law, in my case, is ex post facto. It was not a law at the time I killed Professor Haskell. It was not passed until after I received my life sentence. And this is the very point. My life sentence gave me my status under this law which had not yet been written on the books. And it is because of my status of lifetimer that I am to be hanged for battery committed on the guard Thurston. It is clearly ex post facto, and therefore, unconstitutional. But what bearing has the Constitution on constitutional lawyers when they want to put the notorious Professor Darrell standing out of the way? Nor do I even establish the precedent with my execution. A year ago, as everybody who reads the newspapers knows, they hanged Jake Oppenheimer, right here in Folsom, for a precisely similar offense. Only, in his case of battery, he was not guilty of making a guard's nose bleed. He cut a convict unintentionally with a bread knife. It is strange. Life and men's ways and laws and tangled paths I am writing these lines in the very cell in murderer's row that Jake Oppenheimer occupied ere they took him out and did to him what they are going to do to me. I warned you I had many things to write about. I shall now return to my narrative. The board of prison directors gave me my choice, a prison trusteeship and surcease from the jute looms if I gave up the non-existent dynamite, life imprisonment and solitary if I refused to give up the non-existent dynamite. They gave me twenty-four hours in the jacket to think it over. Then I was brought before the board a second time. What could I do? I could not lead them to the dynamite that was not. I told them so, and they told me I was a liar. They told me I was a hard case, a dangerous man, a moral degenerate, the criminal of the century. They told me many other things, and then they carried me away to the solitary cells. I was put into number one cell. In number five lay Ed Morell. 
In number 12 lay Jake Oppenheimer, and he had been there for ten years. Ed Morrell had been in his cell only one year. He was serving a fifty years sentence. Jake Oppenheimer was a lifer, and so was I a lifer. Wherefore the outlook was that the three of U.S. would remain there for a long time. And yet six years only are past, and not one of us is in solitary. Jake Oppenheimer was swung off. Ed Morrell was made head trustee of San Quentin and then pardoned out only the other day. And here I am in Folsom waiting the day duly set by Judge Morgan, which will be my last day. The fools! As if they could throttle my immortality with their clumsy device of rope and scaffold. I shall walk, and walk again, oh, countless times, this fair earth. And I shall walk in the flesh, be prince and peasant, savant and fool, sit in the high place and groan under the wheel. Chapter 5 It was very lonely, at first, in solitary, and the hours were long. Time was marked by the regular changing of the guards, and by the alternation of day and night. Day was only a little light, but it was better than the all-dark of the night. In solitary the day was a news, a slimy seepage of light from the bright outer world. Never was the light strong enough to read by. Besides, there was nothing to read. One could only lie and think and think. And I was a lifer, and it seemed certain, if I did not do a miracle, make thirty-five pounds of dynamite out of nothing, that all the years of my life would be spent in the silent dark. My bed was a thin and rotten tick of straw spread on the cell floor. One thin and filthy blanket constituted the covering. There was no chair, no table, nothing but the tick of straw and the thin, aged blanket. I was ever a short sleeper and ever a busy brain man. In solitary one grows sick of oneself and his thoughts, and the only way to escape oneself is to sleep. For years I had averaged five hours sleep a night. I now cultivated sleep. I made a science of it. I became able to sleep ten hours, then twelve hours, and at last, as high as fourteen and fifteen hours out of the twenty-four. But beyond that I could not go, and, perforce, was compelled to lie awake and think and think. And that way, for an active brain man, lay madness. I sought devices to enable me mechanically to abide my waking hours. I squared and cubed long series of numbers and by concentration and were carried on most astonishing geometric progressions. I even dallied with the squaring of the circle, until I found myself beginning to believe that that possibility could be accomplished. Whereupon, realizing that there, too, lay madness, I forwent the squaring of the circle, although I assure you it required a considerable sacrifice on my part, for the mental exercise involved was a splendid time-killer. By sheer visualization under my eyelids I constructed chessboards and played both sides of long games through to checkmate. But when I had become expert at this visualized game of memory the exercise palled on me. Exercise it was, for there could be no real contest when the same player played both sides. I tried, and tried vainly, to split my personality into two personalities and to pit one against the other. But ever I remained the one player— with no planned ruse or strategy on one side that the other side did not immediately apprehend. And time was very heavy and very long. I played games with flies, with ordinary houseflies that oozed into solitary as did the dim gray light, and learned that they possessed a sense of play. For instance, lying on the cell floor, I established an arbitrary and imaginary line along the wall some three feet above the floor. 
When they rested on the wall above this line they were left in peace. The instant they lighted on the wall below the line I tried to catch them. I was careful never to hurt them, and in time, they knew as precisely as did I where ran the imaginary line. When they desired to play, they lighted below the line, and often for an hour at a time a single fly would engage in the sport. When it grew tired, it would come to rest on the safe territory above. Of the dozen or more flies that lived with me, there was only one who did not care for the game. He refused steadfastly to play, and, having learned the penalty of alighting below the line, very carefully avoided the unsafe territory. That fly was a sullen, disgruntled creature. As the convicts would say, it had a grouch against the world. He never played with the other flies either. He was strong and healthy, too, for I studied him long to find out. His indisposition for play was temperamental, not physical. Believe me, I knew all my flies. It was surprising to me the multitude of differences I distinguished between them. Oh, each was distinctly an individual, not merely in size and markings, strength, and speed of flight, and in the manner and fancy of flight and play, of dodge and dart, of wheel and swiftly repeat or wheel and reverse, of touch and go on the danger wall, or of faint the touch and alight elsewhere within the zone. They were likewise sharply differentiated in the minutest shades of mentality and temperament. I knew the nervous ones, the phlegmatic ones. There was a little undersized one that would fly into real rages, sometimes with me, sometimes with its fellows. Have you ever seen a colt or a calf throw up its heels and dash madly about the pasture from sheer excess of vitality and spirits? Well, there was one fly, the keenest player of them all, by the way, who, when it had alighted three or four times in rapid succession on my taboo wall and succeeded each time in eluding the velvet-careful swoop of my hand, would grow so excited and jubilant that it would dart around and around my head at top speed, wheeling, veering, reversing, and always keeping within the limits of the narrow circle in which it celebrated its triumph over me. Why, I could tell well in advance when any particular fly was making up its mind to begin to play. There are a thousand details in this one matter alone that I shall not bore you with, although these details did serve to keep me from being bored too utterly during that first period in solitary. But one thing I must tell you. To me it is most memorable, the time when the one with a grouch, who never played, alighted in a moment of absent-mindedness within the taboo precinct and was immediately captured in my hand. Do you know, he sulked for an hour afterward. And the hours were very long and solitary. Nor could I sleep them all away, nor could I while them away with houseflies, no matter how intelligent. For houseflies are houseflies, and I was a man, with a man's brain, and my brain was trained and active, stuffed with culture and science, and always geared to a high tension of eagerness to do. And there was nothing to do, and my thoughts ran abominably on in vain speculations. There was my pentose and methylpentose determination in grapes and wines to which I had devoted my last summer vacation at the Osti Vineyards. I had all but completed the series of experiments. Was anybody else going on with it, I wondered, and if so, with what success? You see, the world was dead to me. No news of it filtered in. The history of science was making fast, and I was interested in a thousand subjects. Why? There was my theory of the hydrolysis of casein by trypsin, which Professor Walters had been carrying out in his laboratory. Also, 
Professor Schleimer had similarly been collaborating with me in the detection of phytosterol in mixtures of animal and vegetable fats. The work surely was going on, but with what results? The very thought of all this activity just beyond the prison walls and in which I could take no part, of which I was never even to hear, was maddening. And in the meantime I lay there on my cell floor and played games with houseflies. And yet all was not silence and solitary. Early in my confinement I used to hear, at irregular intervals, faint, low tappings. From farther away I also heard fainter and lower tappings. Continually these tappings were interrupted by the snarling of the guard. On occasion, when the tapping went on too persistently, extra guards were summoned, and I knew by the sounds that men were being straight-jacketed. The matter was easy of explanation. I had known, as every prisoner in San Quentin knew, that the two men in solitary were Ed Morell and Jake Oppenheimer. And I knew that these were the two men who tapped knuckle-talked to each other, and were punished for so doing. That the code they used was simple I had not the slightest doubt, yet I devoted many hours to a vain effort to work it out. Heaven knows, it had to be simple, yet I could not make head nor tail of it. And simple it proved to be, when I learned it, and simplest of all proved the trick they employed which had so baffled me. Not only each day did they change the point in the alphabet where the code anilled, but they changed it every conversation, and often, in the midst of a conversation. Thus, there came a day when I caught the code at the right initial, listened to two clear sentences of conversation, and the next time they talked, failed to understand a word. But that first time, Say, Ed, what would you give right now for brown papers and a sack of bull Durham? asked the one who tapped from farther away. I nearly cried out in my joy. Here was communication. Here was companionship. I listened eagerly, and the nearer tapping, which I guess must be Ed Morell's, replied, I would do twenty hours straight in the jacket for a five-cent sack. Then came the snarling interruption of the guard. Cut that out, Morel. It may be thought by the layman that the worst has been done to men sentenced to solitary for life, and therefore that a mere guard has no way of compelling obedience to his order to cease tapping. But the jacket remains. Starvation remains. Thirst remains. Manhandling remains. Truly, a man pent in a narrow cell is very helpless. So the tapping ceased and that night, when it was next resumed, I was all at sea again. By prearrangement they had changed the initial letter of the code. But I had caught the clue, and in the matter of several days, occurred again the same initialment I had understood. I did not wait on courtesy. Hello? I tapped. Hello, stranger? Morel tapped back, and from Oppenheimer. Welcome to our city. They were curious to know who I was how long I was condemned to solitary, and why I had been so condemned. But all this I put to the side in order first to learn their system of changing the code initial. After I had this clear, we talked. It was a great day, for the two lifers had become three, although they accepted me only on probation. As they told me long after, they feared I might be a stool placed there to work a frame up on them. It had been done before, to Oppenheimer, and he had paid dearly for the confidence he reposed in Warden Atherton's tool. To my surprise, yes, to my elation be it said, both my fellow prisoners knew me through my record as an incorrigible. Even into the living grave Oppenheimer had occupied for ten years had my fame, 
or notoriety, rather, penetrated. I had much to tell them of prison happenings and of the outside world. The conspiracy to escape of the forty lifers, the search for the alleged dynamite, and all the treacherous frame-up of Cecil Winwood was news to them. As they told me, news did occasionally dribble into solitary by way of the guards, but they had had nothing for a couple of months. The present guards on duty in solitary were a particularly bad and vindictive set. Again and again that day we were cursed for our knuckle-talking by whatever guard was on. But we could not refrain. The two of the living dead had become three, and we had so much to say, while the manner of saying it was exasperatingly slow, and I was not so proficient as they at the knuckle game. Wait till Pieface comes on tonight, Morel rapped to me. He sleeps most of his watch, and we can talk a streak. How we did talk that night. Sleep was farthest from our eyes. Pieface Jones was a mean and bitter man, despite his fatness but we blessed that fatness because it persuaded to stolen snatches of slumber. Nevertheless our incessant tapping bothered his sleep and irritated him so that he reprimanded us repeatedly. And by the other night guards we were roundly cursed. In the morning all reported much tapping during the night, and we paid for our little holiday. For, at nine, came Captain Jamie with several guards to lace us into the torment of the jacket. Until nine the following morning— For twenty-four straight hours, laced and helpless on the floor, without food or water, we paid the price for speech. Oh, our guards were brutes. And under their treatment we had to harden to brutes in order to live. Hard work makes calloused hands. Hard guards make hard prisoners. We continued to talk, and on occasion, to be jacketed for punishment. Night was the best time, and, when substitute guards chanced to be on, we often talked through a whole shift. Night and day were one with us who lived in the dark. We could sleep any time, we could knuckle-talk only on occasion. We told one another much of the history of our lives, and for long hours Morel and I have lain silently, while steadily, with faint, far taps, Oppenheimer slowly spelled out his life story, from the early years in a San Francisco slum, through his gang training, through his initiation into all that was vicious— when as a lad of fourteen he served as night messenger in the red-light district, through his first detected infraction of the laws, and on and on through thefts and robberies to the treachery of a comrade and to red slayings inside prison walls. They called Jake Oppenheimer the human tiger. Some cub reporter coined the phrase that will long outlive the man to whom it was applied. And yet I ever found in Jake Oppenheimer all the cardinal traits of right humanists. He was faithful and loyal. I know of the times he has taken punishment in preference to informing on a comrade. He was brave. He was patient. He was capable of self-sacrifice. I could tell a story of this, but shall not take the time. And justice, with him, was a passion. The prison killings done by him were due entirely to this extreme sense of justice. And he had a splendid mind. A lifetime in prison, ten years of it in solitary— had not dimmed his brain. Morel, ever a true comrade, too had a splendid brain. In fact, and I who am about to die have the right to say it without incurring the charge of immodesty, the three best minds in San Quentin from the warden down were the three that rotted there together in solitary. And here at the end of my days, reviewing all that I have known of life, I am compelled to the conclusion that strong minds are never docile. The stupid men, the fearful men, the men ungifted with passionate rightness and fearless championship, 
These are the men who make model prisoners. I thank all gods that Jake Oppenheimer, Ed Morell, and I were not model prisoners. Chapter 6 There is more than the germ of truth and things erroneous in the child's definition of memory, as the thing one forgets with. To be able to forget means sanity. Incessantly to remember means obsession, lunacy. So the problem I faced in solitary, where incessant remembering strove for possession of me, was the problem of forgetting. When I gamed with flies, or played chess with myself, or talked with my knuckles, I partially forgot. What I desired was entirely to forget. There were the boyhood memories of other times and places, the trailing clouds of glory of Wordsworth. If a boy had had these memories, were they irretrievably lost when he had grown to manhood? Could this particular content of his boy brain be utterly eliminated? Or were these memories of other times and places still residual, asleep, immured in solitary and brain cells similarly to the way I was immured in a cell in San Quentin? Solitary life prisoners have been known to resurrect and look upon the sun again. Then why could not these other world memories of the boy resurrect? But how? In my judgment, by attainment of complete forgetfulness of present and of manhood past. And again, how? Hypnotism should do it. If by hypnotism the conscious mind were put to sleep, and the subconscious mind awakened, then was the thing accomplished, then would all the dungeon doors of the brain be thrown wide, then would the prisoners emerge into the sunshine. So I reasoned, with what result you shall learn. But first I must tell how, as a boy, I had had these other-world memories. I had glowed in the clouds of glory I trailed from lives aforetime. Like any boy, I had been haunted by the other beings I had been at other times. This had been during my process of becoming, ere the flux of all that I had ever been had hardened in the mold of the one personality that was to be known by men for a few years as Daryl Standing. Let me narrate just one incident. It was up in Minnesota on the old farm. I was nearly six years old. A missionary to China, returned to the United States, and sent out by the Board of Missions to raise funds from the farmers, spent the night in our house. It was in the kitchen just after supper, as my mother was helping me undress for bed, and the missionary was showing photographs of the Holy Land. And what I am about to tell you I should long since have forgotten had I not heard my father recite it to wondering listeners so many times during my childhood. I cried out at sight of one of the photographs and looked at it, first with eagerness, and then with disappointment. It had seemed of a sudden most familiar, in much the same way that my father's barn would have been in a photograph. Then it had seemed altogether strange. But as I continued to look the haunting sense of familiarity came back. The Tower of David, the missionary said to my mother. No, I cried with great positiveness. You mean that isn't its name? the missionary asked. I nodded. Then what is its name, my boy? Its name is, I began, then concluded lamely. I forget. It don't look the same now. I went on after a pause. They've been fixin' it up awful. Here the missionary handed to my mother another photograph he had sought out. I was there myself six months ago, Mrs. Standing. He pointed with his finger. That is the Jaffa Gate where I walked in and right up to the Tower of David in the back of the picture where my finger is now. The authorities are pretty well agreed on such matters. Alcala, as it was known by. But here I broke in again, pointing to rubbish piles of ruined masonry on the left edge of the photograph. 
over there somewhere, I said. That name you just spoke was what the Jews called it. But we called it something else. We called it, I forget. Listen to the youngster. My father chuckled. You'd think he'd been there. I nodded my head, for in that moment I knew I had been there, though all seemed strangely different. My father laughed the harder, but the missionary thought I was making game of him. He handed me another photograph. It was just a bleak waste of a landscape, barren of trees and vegetation, a shallow canyon with easy sloping walls of rubble. In the middle distance was a cluster of wretched, flat-roofed hovels. Now, my boy, where is that? The missionary quizzed. And the name came to me. Samaria, I said instantly. My father clapped his hands with glee. My mother was perplexed at my antic conduct, while the missionary evinced irritation. The boy is right, he said. It is a village in Samaria. I passed through it. That is why I bought it. And it goes to show that the boy has seen similar photographs before. This my father and mother denied. But it's different in the picture. I volunteered, while all the time my memory was busy reconstructing the photograph. The general trend of the landscape and the line of the distant hills were the same. The differences I noted aloud and pointed out with my finger. The houses was about right here, and there was more trees, lots of trees, and lots of grass, and lots of goats. I can see em now, and two boys driving em. And right here is a lot of men walking behind one man. And over there, I pointed to where I had placed my village, is a lot of tramps. They ain't got nothing on except in rags. And they're sick. Their faces and hands and legs is all sores. He's heard the story in church or somewhere. You remember, the healing of the lepers in Luke. The missionary said with a smile of satisfaction. How many sick tramps are there, my boy? I had learned to count to a hundred when I was five years old, so I went over the group carefully and announced. Ten of them. They're all waving their arms and yelling at the other men. But they don't come near them? Was the query. I shook my head. They just stand right there and keep a yelling like they was in trouble. Go on, urged the missionary. What next? What's the man doing in the front of the other crowd you said was walking along? They've all stopped, and he's saying something to the sick men. And the boys with the goats s stopped to look. Everybody's looking dot. And then? That's all. The sick men are heading for the houses. They ain't yelling anymore, and they don't look sick anymore. And I just keep setting on my horse a looking on. At this all three of my listeners broke into laughter. And I'm a big man, I cried out angrily. And I got a big sword. The ten lepers Christ healed before he passed through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. The missionary explained to my parents. The boy has seen slides of famous paintings in some magic lantern exhibition. But neither father nor mother could remember that I had ever seen a magic lantern. Try him with another picture, father suggested. It's all different. I complained as I studied the photograph the missionary handed me. Ain't nothing here except that hill and them other hills. This ought to be a country road along here. And over there ought to be gardens and trees and houses behind big stone walls. And over there, on the other side, in holes in the rocks ought to be where they buried dead folks. You see this place? They used to throw stones at people there until they killed them. I never seen them do it. They just told me about it. And the hill? 
the missionary asked, pointing to the central part of the print, for which the photograph seemed to have been taken. Can you tell us the name of the hill? I shook my head. Never had no name. They killed folks there. I've seen them more than once. This time he agrees with the majority of the authorities, announced the missionary with huge satisfaction. The hill is Golgotha, the place of skulls, or, as you please, so named because it resembles a skull. Notice the resemblance. That is where they crucified. He broke off and turned to me. Whom did they crucify there, young scholar? Tell us what else you see. Oh, I saw. My father reported that my eyes were bulging, but I shook my head stubbornly and said, I ain't a-going to tell you because you're Logan at me. I seen lots and lots of men killed there. They nailed them up and it took a long time. I seen, but I ain't a-going to tell. I don't tell lies. You ask dad and ma if I tell lies. He'd well the stuffin' out of me if I did. Ask him. And thereat not another word could the missionary get from me, even though he baited me with more photographs that sent my head whirling with a rush of memory pictures and that urged and tickled my tongue with spates of speech which I sullenly resisted and overcame. He will certainly make a good Bible scholar. The missionary told father and mother after I had kissed them good night and departed for bed. Or else, with that imagination, he'll become a successful fiction writer, which shows how prophecy can go eagerly. I sit here in Murderer's Row, writing these lines in my last days, or rather, in Daryl Standing's last days ere they take him out and try to thrust him into the dark at the end of a rope, and I smile to myself. I became neither Bible scholar nor novelist. On the contrary, until they buried me in the cells of silence for half a decade, I was everything that the missionary forecasted not, an agricultural expert, a professor of agronomy, a specialist in the science of the elimination of waste motion, a master of farm efficiency, a precise laboratory scientist where precision and adherence to microscopic fact are absolute requirements. And I sit here in the warm afternoon, in murderer's row, and cease from the writing of my memoirs to listen to the soothing buzz of flies in the drowsy air, and catch phrases of a low-voiced conversation between Josephus Jackson, the Negro murderer on my right, and Bambecho, the Italian murderer on my left, who are discussing, through grated door to grated door, back and forth past my grated door, the antiseptic virtues and excellences of chewing tobacco for flesh wounds. And in my suspended hand I hold my fountain pen, and as I remember that other hands of me, in long-gone ages, wielded inkbrush and quill and stylus, I also find thought space and time to wonder if that missionary, when he was a little lad, ever trailed clouds of glory and glimpsed the brightness of old star-roving days. Well, back to solitary, after I had learned the code of knuckle-talk and still found the hours of consciousness too long to endure. By self-hypnosis, which I began successfully to practice, I became able to put my conscious mind to sleep and to awaken and loose my subconscious mind. But the latter was an undisciplined and lawless thing. It wandered through all nightmarish madness, without coherence, without continuity of scene, event, or person. My method of mechanical hypnosis was the soul of simplicity. Sitting with folded legs on my straw mattress, I gazed fixedly at a fragment of bright straw which I had attached to the wall of my cell near the door where the most light was. I gazed at the bright point, with my eyes close to it, and tilted upward till they strained to see. 
At the same time I relaxed all the will of me and gave myself to the swaying dizziness that always eventually came to me. And when I felt myself sway out of balance backward, I closed my eyes and permitted myself to fall supine and unconscious on the mattress. And then, for half an hour, ten minutes, or as long as an hour or so, I would wander erratically and foolishly through the stored memories of my eternal recurrence on earth. But times and places shifted too swiftly. I knew afterward, when I awoke, that I, Daryl Standing, was the linking personality that connected all bizarreness and grotesqueness. But that was all. I could never live out completely one full experience, one point of consciousness in time and space. My dreams, if dreams they may be called, were rhymeless and reasonless. Thus, as a sample of my rovings, in a single interval of fifteen minutes of subconsciousness I have crawled and bellowed in the slime of the primeval world and sat beside Haas, further, and cleaved the twentieth-century air in a gas-driven monoplane. Awake, I remembered that I, Daryl Standing in the flesh, during the year preceding my incarceration in San Quentin, had flown with Haas further over the Pacific at Santa Monica. Awake, I did not remember the crawling and the bellowing in the ancient slime. Nevertheless, awake, I reasoned that somehow I had remembered that early adventure in the slime, and that it was a verity of long previous experience, when I was not yet Daryl standing but somebody else, or something else that crawled and bellowed. One experience was merely more remote than the other. Both experiences were equally real, or else how did I remember them? Oh, what a fluttering of luminous images and actions! In a few short minutes of loose subconsciousness I have sat in the halls of kings, above the salt and below the salt, been fool and jester, man-at-arms, clerk and monk, and I have been ruler above all at the head of the table, temporal power in my own sword-arm, in the thickness of my castle walls, and the numbers of my fighting men. Spiritual power likewise mine by token of the fact that called priests and fat abbots sat beneath me and swigged my wine and swined my meat. I have worn the iron collar of the serf about my neck in cold climes, and I have loved princesses of royal houses in the tropic warmed and sun-scented night, where black slaves fanned the sultry air with fans of peacock plumes, while from afar, across the palm and fountains, drifted the roaring of lions and the cries of jackals. I have crouched in chill desert places warming my hands at fires builded of camel's dung and I have lain in the meager shade of sun-parched sagebrush by dry waterholes and yearned dry-tongue for water, while about me, dismembered and scattered in the alkali, were the bones of men and beasts who had yearned and died. I have been Sikuni and Bravo, scholar and recluse. I have pored over handwritten pages of huge and musty tomes in the scholastic quietude and twilight of cliff-perched monasteries, while beneath on the lesser slopes— Peasants still toiled beyond the end of day among the vines and olives and drove in from pastures the blatting goats and lowing kine, yes, and I have led shouting rabbles down the wheel-worn, chariot-rutted paves of ancient and forgotten cities, and solemn-voiced and grave as death. I have enunciated the law, stated the gravity, of the infraction, and imposed the due death on men, who, like Daryl standing in fulsome prison, had broken the law. Aloft, at giddy mastheads oscillating above the decks of ships, I have gazed on sun-flashed water where coral growths iridesce from profounds of turquoise deeps, and conned the ships into the safety of mirrored lagoons where the anchors rumbled down close to palm-frond beaches of sea-pounded coral rock, and I have striven on forgotten battlefields of the elder days. 
when the sun went down on slaughter that did not cease and that continued through the night hours with the stars shining down, and with a cool night wind blowing from distant peaks of snow that failed to chill the sweat of battle, and again, I have been little Daryl standing, barefooted in the dew-lush grass of spring on the Minnesota farm, chill-blained when of frosty mornings I fed the cattle in their breath-steaming stalls, sobered to fear and awe of the splendor, and terror of God when I sat on Sundays under the rant and preachment of the New Jerusalem and the agonies of hellfire. Now, the foregoing were the glimpses and glimmerings that came to me, when, in cell one of solitary in San Quentin, I stared myself unconscious by means of a particle of bright, light radiating straw. How did these things come to me? Surely I could not have manufactured them out of nothing inside my pent walls any more than could I have manufactured out of nothing the thirty-five pounds of dynamite so ruthlessly demanded of me by Captain Jamie, Warden Atherton, and the prison board of directors. I am Darrell Standing, born and raised on a quarter section of land in Minnesota, erstwhile professor of agronomy, a prisoner incorrigible in San Quentin, and at present a death-sentenced man in Folsom. I do not know— of Darrell Standing's experience, these things of which I write and which I have dug from out my storehouses of subconsciousness. I, Darrell Standing, born in Minnesota and soon to die by the rope in California, surely never loved daughters of kings in the courts of kings, nor fought cutlass to cutlass on the swaying decks of ships, nor drowned in the spirit rooms of ships, guzzling raw liquor to the wassail shouting and death singing of seamen while the ship lifted and crashed on the black-toothed rocks and the water bubbled overhead, beneath, and all about. Such things are not of Daryl Standing's experience in the world. Yet I, Daryl Standing, found these things within myself and solitary in San Quentin by means of mechanical self-hypnosis. No more were these experiences Daryl Standing's than was the word, Samaria, Daryl Standing's when it leapt to his child lips at sight of a photograph. One cannot make anything out of nothing. In solitary I could not so make thirty-five pounds of dynamite. Nor in solitary, out of nothing in Daryl Standing's experience, could I make these wide, far visions of time and space. These things were in the content of my mind, and in my mind I was just beginning to learn my way about. Chapter 7 So here was my predicament. I knew that within myself was a Golconda of memories of other lives, yet I was unable to do more than flit like a madman through those memories. I had my Golconda but could not mine it. I remembered the case of Stainton Moses, the clergyman who had been possessed by the personalities of S. T. Hippolytus, Plotinus, Athenodorus, and of that friend of Erasmus named Grosin. And when I considered the experiments of Colonel de Roches, which I had read in Tyro fashion in other and busier days, I was convinced that Stainton Moses had— in previous lives, been those personalities that on occasion seemed to possess him. In truth, they were he, they were the links of the chain of recurrence. But more especially did I dwell upon the experiments of Colonel de Roches. By means of suitable hypnotic subjects he claimed that he had penetrated backwards through time to the ancestors of his subjects. Thus, the case of Josephine which he describes. She was eighteen years old and she lived at Voiron, in the department of the Iser. Under hypnotism Colonel de Roches sent her adventuring back through her adolescence, her girlhood, her childhood, breast infancy, and the silent dark of her mother's womb, and still back through the silence and the dark of the time when she, Josephine, was not yet born, to the light and life of a previous living, 
when she had been a churlish, suspicious, and embittered old man, by name Jean-Claude Borden, who had served his time in the 7th Artillery at Bessancon, and who died at the age of seventy, long bedridden. Yes, and did not Colonel de Roches in turn hypnotize this shade of Jean-Claude Borden, so that he had ventured farther back into time, through infancy and birth and the dark of the unborn, until he found again light and life when, as a wicked old woman, he had been Philomene Cartron? But try as I would with my bright bit of straw in the oozement of light into solitary, I failed to achieve any such definiteness of previous personality. I became convinced, through the failure of my experiments, that only through death could I clearly and coherently resurrect the memories of my previous selves. But the tides of life ran strong in me. I, Darrell Standing, was so strongly disinclined to die that I refused to let Warden Atherton and Captain Jamie kill me. I was always so innately urged to live that sometimes I think that is why I am still here, eating and sleeping, thinking and dreaming, writing this narrative of my various me's, and awaiting the incontestable rope that will put an ephemeral period in my long-linked existence. And then came death and life. I learned the trick, Ed Morrell taught it me, as you shall see. It began through Warden Atherton and Captain Jamie. They must have experienced a recrudescence of panic at thought of the dynamite they believed hidden. They came to me in my dark cell, and they told me plainly that they would jacket me to death if I did not confess where the dynamite was hidden and they assured me that they would do it officially without any hurt to their own official skins. My death would appear on the prison register as due to natural causes. Oh dear, Cottonwool citizen, please believe me when I tell you that men are killed in prisons today as they have always been killed since the first prisons were built by men. I well knew the terror, the agony, and the danger of the jacket. Oh, the men's spirit broken by the jacket. I have seen them and I have seen men crippled for life by the jacket. I have seen men, strong men, men so strong that their physical stamina resisted all attacks of prison tuberculosis. After a prolonged bout with the jacket, their resistance broken down, fade away, and die of tuberculosis within six months. There was slant-eyed Wilson, with an unguessed weak heart of fear, who died in the jacket within the first hour while the unconvinced inefficient of a prison doctor looked on and smiled and I have seen a man confess, after half an hour in the jacket, truths and fictions that cost him years of credits. I had had my own experiences. At the present moment half a thousand scars mark my body. They go to the scaffold with me. Did I live a hundred years to come those same scars in the end would go to the grave with me? Perhaps, dear citizen who permits and pays his hangdogs to lace the jacket for you, perhaps you are unacquainted with the jacket. Let me describe it, so that you will understand the method by which I achieved death and life, became a temporary master of time and space, and vaulted the prison walls to rove among the stars. Have you ever seen canvas tarpaulins or rubber blankets with brass eyelets set in along the edges? Then imagine a piece of stout canvas, some four and one-half feet in length, with large and heavy brass eyelets running down both edges. The width of this canvas is never the full girth of the human body it is to surround. The width is also irregular, broadest at the shoulders, next broadest at the hips, and narrowest at the waist. The jacket is spread on the floor. The man who is to be punished, or who is to be tortured for confession, is told to lie face downward on the flat canvas. If he refuses, he is manhandled. 
After that he lays himself down with a will, which is the will of the hangdogs, which is your will, dear citizen, who feeds and feeds the hangdogs for doing this thing for you. The man lies face downward. The edges of the jacket are brought as nearly together as possible along the center of the man's back. Then a rope, on the principle of a shoelace, is run through the eyelets, and on the principle of a shoelacing the man is laced in the canvas. Only he is laced more severely than any person ever laces his shoe. They call it, cinching, in prison lingo. On occasion, when the guards are cruel and vindictive, or when the command has come down from above, in order to ensure the severity of the lacing the guards press with their feet into the man's back as they draw the lacing tight. Have you ever laced your shoe too tightly, and after half an hour, experienced that excruciating pain across the instep of the obstructed circulation? And do you remember that after a few minutes of such pain you simply could not walk another step and had to untie the shoelace and ease the pressure? Very well. Then try to imagine your whole body so laced, only much more tightly, and that the squeeze, instead of being merely on the instep of one foot, is on your entire trunk, compressing to the seeming of death your heart, your lungs, and all the rest of your vital and essential organs. I remember the first time they gave me the jacket down in the dungeons. It was at the beginning of my incorrigibility, shortly after my entrance to prison, when I was weaving my loom task of a hundred yards a day in the jute mill and finishing two hours ahead of the average day. Yes, and my jute sacking was far above the average demanded. I was sent to the jacket that first time, according to the prison books, because of skips and breaks in the cloth, in short, because my work was defective. Of course this was ridiculous. In truth, I was sent to the jacket because I, a new convict, a master of efficiency, a trained expert in the elimination of waste motion, had elected to tell the stupid head weaver a few things he did not know about his business. And the head weaver, with Captain Jamie present, had me called to the table where atrocious weaving, such as could never have gone through my loom, was exhibited against me. Three times was I thus called to the table. The third calling meant punishment according to the loom room rules. My punishment was twenty-four hours in the jacket. They took me down into the dungeons. I was ordered to lie face downward on the canvas spread flat upon the floor. I refused. One of the guards, Morrison, galled me with his thumbs. Mobbins, the dungeon trusty, a convict himself, struck me repeatedly with his fists. In the end I lay down as directed and, because of the struggle I had vexed them with, they laced me extra tight. Then they rolled me over like a log upon my back. It did not seem so bad at first. When they closed my door, with clang and clash of levered voltage, and left me in the utter dark, it was eleven o'clock in the morning. For a few minutes I was aware merely of an uncomfortable constriction which I fondly believed would ease as I grew accustomed to it. On the contrary, my heart began to thump and my lungs seemed unable to draw sufficient air for my blood. This sense of suffocation was terrorizing, and every thump of the heart threatened to burst my already bursting lungs. After what seemed hours, and after what, out of my countless succeeding experiences in the jacket I can now fairly conclude to have been not more than half an hour, I began to cry out, to yell, to scream, to howl, in a very madness of dying. The trouble was the pain that had arisen in my heart. It was a sharp, definite pain, similar to that of pleurisy, except that it stabbed hotly through the heart itself. To die is not a difficult thing, 
but to die in such slow and horrible fashion was maddening. Like a trapped beast of the wild, I experienced ecstasies of fear, and yelled and howled until I realized that such vocal exercise merely stabbed my heart more hotly and at the same time consumed much of the little air in my lungs. I gave over and lay quiet for a long time, an eternity it seemed then, though now I am confident that it could have been no longer than a quarter of an hour. I grew dizzy with semi-asphyxiation, and my heart thumped until it seemed surely it would burst the canvas that bound me. Again I lost control of myself and set up a mad howling for help. In the midst of this I heard a voice from the next dungeon. Shut up! It shouted, though only faintly it percolated to me. Shut up! You make me tired. I'm dying! I cried out. Pound your ear and forget it, was the reply. But I am dying, I insisted. Then why worry, came the voice. You'll be dead pretty quick and out of it. Go ahead and croak, but don't make so much noise about it. You're interrupting my beauty sleep. So angered was I by this callous indifference that I recovered self-control and was guilty of no more than smothered groans. This endured an endless time, possibly ten minutes and then a tingling numbness set up in all my body. It was like pins and needles, and for as long as it hurt like pins and needles I kept my head. But when the prickling of the multitudinous darts ceased to hurt, and only the numbness remained and continued verging into greater numbness I once more grew frightened. How am I going to get a wink of sleep? My neighbor complained. I ain't any more happy than you. My jacket's just as tight as yourn, and I want to sleep and forget it. How long have you been in? I asked, thinking him a newcomer compared to the centuries I had already suffered. Since day before yesterday, was his answer. I mean in the jacket, I amended. Since day before yesterday, brother. My God! I screamed. Yes, brother, fifty straight hours, and you don't hear me raising a roar about it. They cinched me with their feet in my back. I am some tight, believe me. You ain't the only one that's got troubles. You ain't been in an hour yet. I've been in hours and hours, I protested. Brother, you may think so, but it don't make it so. I'm just telling you you ain't been in an hour. I heard em lassin' you. The thing was incredible. Already, in less than an hour, I had died a thousand deaths. And yet this neighbor, balanced and equable, calm-voiced and almost beneficent despite the harshness of his first remarks, had been in the jacket fifty hours. How much longer are they going to keep you in? I asked. The Lord only knows. Captain Jamie is real peeved with me, and he won't let me out until I'm about croaking. Now, brother, I'm going to give you the tip. The only way is shut your face and forget it. Yelling and hollering don't win you no money in this joint. And the way to forget is to forget. Just get to remembering every girl you ever knew. That'll eat up hours for you. Meb you'll feel yourself getting woozy. Well, get woozy. You can't beat that for killing time. And when the girls won't hold you, get to thinking of the fellows you got it in for, and what you do to em if you got a chance, and what you're going to do to em when you get that same chance. That man was Philadelphia Red. Because of prior conviction he was serving fifty years for highway robbery committed on the streets of Alameda. He had already served a dozen of his years at the time he talked to me in the jacket, and that was seven years ago. He was one of the forty lifers who were double-crossed by Cecil Winwood. 
for that offense Philadelphia Red lost his credits. He is middle-aged now, and he is still in San Quentin. If he survives he will be an old man when they let him out. I lived through my twenty-four hours, and I have never been the same man since. Oh, I don't mean physically, although next morning, when they unlaced me, I was semi-paralyzed and in such a state of collapse that the guards had to kick me in the ribs to make me crawl to my feet. But I was a changed man mentally, morally. The brute physical torture of it was humiliation and affront to my spirit and to my sense of justice. Such discipline does not sweeten a man. I emerged from that first jacketing filled with a bitterness and a passionate hatred that has only increased through the years. My God, when I think of the things men have done to me. Twenty-four hours in the jacket. Little I thought that morning when they kicked me to my feet that the time would come when twenty-four hours in the jacket meant nothing, when a hundred hours in the jacket found me smiling when they released me, when two hundred and forty hours in the jacket found the same smile on my lips. Yes, two hundred and forty hours. Dear Cottonwoolly citizen, do you know what that means? It means ten days and ten nights in the jacket. Of course, such things are not done anywhere in the Christian world nineteen hundred years after Christ. I don't ask you to believe me. I don't believe it myself. I merely know that it was done to me in San Quentin, and that I lived to laugh at them and to compel them to get rid of me by swinging me off because I bloodied a guard's nose. I write these lines today in the year of our Lord 1913, and today, in the year of our Lord 1913, men are lying in the jacket in the dungeons of San Quentin. I shall never forget, as long as further living and further lives be vouchsafed me, my parting from Philadelphia read that morning. He had then been seventy-four hours in the jacket. Well, brother, you're still alive and kicking, he called to me, as I was totteringly dragged from my cell into the corridor of dungeons. Shut up, you red, the sergeant snarled at him. Forget it, was the retort. I'll get you yet, red, the sergeant threatened. Think so? Philadelphia Red queried sweetly, ere his tones turned to savageness. Why, you old stiff, you couldn't get nothing. You couldn't get a free lunch, much less the job you've got now, if it wasn't for your brother's pull. And I guess we all ain't mistaken on the stink of the place where your brother's pull comes from. It was admirable, the spirit of man rising above its extremity, fearless of the hurt any brute of the system could inflict. Well, so long, brother. Philadelphia Red next called to me. So long. Be good, and love the warden. And if you see em, just tell em that you saw me but that you didn't see me saw. The sergeant was red with rage, and by the receipt of various kicks and blows, I paid for Red's pleasantry. Chapter 8 In solitary, in cell 1, Warden Atherton and Captain Jamie proceeded to put me to the Inquisition. As Warden Atherton said to me, Standing, you're going to come across with that dynamite, or I'll kill you in the jacket. Harder cases than you have come across before I got done with them. You've got your choice, dynamite or curtains. Then I guess it is curtains, I answered, because I don't know of any dynamite. This irritated the warden to immediate action. Lie down, he commanded. I obeyed, for I had learned the folly of fighting three or four strong men. They laced me tightly and gave me a hundred hours. Once each twenty-four hours I was permitted a drink of water. I had no desire for food, nor was food offered me. Toward the end of the hundred hours Jackson, the prison doctor, 
examined my physical condition several times. But I had grown too used to the jacket during my incorrigible days to let a single jacketing injure me. Naturally, it weakened me, took the life out of me, but I had learned muscular tricks for stealing a little space while they were lacing me. At the end of the first hundred hours bout I was worn and tired, but that was all. Another bout of this duration they gave me, after a day and a night to recuperate. And then they gave one hundred and fifty hours. Much of this time I was physically numb and mentally delirious. Also, by an effort of will, I managed to sleep away long hours. Next, Warden Atherton tried a variation. I was given irregular intervals of jacket and recuperation. I never knew when I was to go into the jacket. Thus I would have ten hours recuperation and do twenty in the jacket, or I would receive only four hours rest. At the most unexpected hours of the night my door would clang open and the changing guards would lace me. Sometimes rhythms were instituted. Thus, for three days and nights I alternated eight hours in the jacket and eight hours out. And then, just as I was growing accustomed to this rhythm, it was suddenly altered and I was given two days and nights straight. And ever the eternal question was propounded to me, where was the dynamite? Sometimes Warden Atherton was furious with me. On occasion, when I had endured an extra severe jacketing, he almost pleaded with me to confess. Once he even promised me three months in the hospital of absolute rest and good food, and then the trusty job in the library. Dr. Jackson, a weak stick of a creature with a smattering of medicine, grew skeptical. He insisted that jacketing, no matter how prolonged, could never kill me, and his insistence was a challenge to the warden to continue the attempt. These lean college guys defool the devil, he grumbled. They're tougher and rawhide. Just the same will wear him down. Standing, you hear me? What you've got ain't a caution to what you're going to get. You might as well come across now and save trouble. I'm a man of my word. You've heard me say dynamite or curtains. Well, that stands. Take your choice. Surely you don't think I'm holding out because I enjoy it? I managed to gasp, for at the moment Pieface Jones was forcing his foot into my back in order to cinch me tighter, while I was trying with my muscle to steal slack. There is nothing to confess. Why, I'd cut off my right hand right now to be able to lead you to any dynamite. Oh, I've seen your educated kind before, he sneered. You get wheels in your head, some of you, that make you stick to any old idea. You get bulky, like horses. Tighter, Jones, that ain't half a cinch. Standing, if you don't come across its curtains. I stick by that. One compensation I learned. As one grows weaker one is less susceptible to suffering. There is less hurt because there is less to hurt. And the man already well weakened grows weaker more slowly. It is of common knowledge that unusually strong men suffer more severely from ordinary sicknesses than do women or invalids. As the reserves of strength are consumed there is less strength to lose. After all superfluous flesh is gone what is left is stringy and resistant. In fact, that was what I became a sort of string-like organism that persisted in living. Morel and Oppenheimer were sorry for me, and wrapped me sympathy and advice. Oppenheimer told me he had gone through it, and worse, and still lived. Don't let them beat you out, he spelled with his knuckles. Don't let them kill you, for that would suit them. And don't squeal on the plant. But there isn't any plant. 
I rapped back with the edge of the sole of my shoe against the grating. I was in the jacket at the time, and so could talk only with my feet. I don't know anything about the damn dynamite. That's right, Oppenheimer praised. He's the stuff, ain't he, Ed? Which goes to show what chance I had of convincing Warden Atherton of my ignorance of the dynamite. His very persistence in the quest convinced a man like Jake Oppenheimer, who could only admire me for the fortitude with which I kept a close mouth. During this first period of the Jacket Inquisition I managed to sleep a great deal. My dreams were remarkable. Of course they were vivid and real, as most dreams are. What made them remarkable was their coherence and continuity. Often I addressed bodies of scientists on abstruse subjects, reading aloud to them carefully prepared papers on my own researches or on my own deductions from the researches and experiments of others. When I awakened my voice would seem still ringing in my ears, while my eyes still could see typed on the white paper whole sentences and paragraphs that I could read again and marvel at ere the vision faded. In passing, I call attention to the fact that at the time I noted that the process of reasoning employed in these dream speeches was invariably deductive. Then there was a great farming section, extending north and south for hundreds of miles in some part of the temperate regions, with a climate and flora and fauna largely resembling those of California. Not once, nor twice, but thousands of different times I journeyed through this dream region. The point I desired to call attention to was that it was always the same region. No essential feature of it ever differed in the different dreams. Thus it was always an eight-hour drive behind mountain horses from the alfalfa meadows, where I kept many Jersey cows, to the straggly village beside the big dry creek, where I caught the little narrow-gauge train. Every landmark in that eight-hour drive in the mountain buckboard, every tree, every mountain, every ford and bridge, every ridge and eroded hillside was ever the same. In this coherent, rational farm region of my straitjacket dreams the minor details— according to season and to the labor of men, did change. Thus on the upland pastures behind my alfalfa meadows I developed a new farm with the aid of angora goats. Here I marked the changes with every dream visit, and the changes were in accordance with the time that elapsed between visits. Oh, those brush-covered slopes! How I can see them now just as when the goats were first introduced! And how I remembered the consequent changes— the paths beginning to form as the goats literally ate their way through the dense thickets, the disappearance of the younger, smaller bushes that were not too tall for total browsing, the vistas that formed in all directions through the older, taller bushes, as the goats browsed as high as they could stand and reach on their hind legs, the driftage of the pasture grasses that followed in the wake of the clearing by the goats. Yes, the continuity of such dreaming was its charm. Came the day when the men with axes chopped down all the taller brush so as to give the goats access to the leaves and buds and bark. Came the day, in winter weather, when the dry denuded skeletons of all these bushes were gathered into heaps and burned. Came the day when I moved my goats on to other brush-impregnable hillsides, with following in their wake my cattle, pasturing knee-deep in the succulent grasses that grew where before had been only brush. And came the day when I moved my cattle on, and my plowmen went back and forth across the slope's contour, plowing the rich sod under to rot to live and crawl in humus in which to bed my seeds of crops to be. Yes, and in my dreams, often, I got off the little narrow-gauge train where the straggly village stood beside the big dry creek, and got into the buckboard behind my mountain horses, 
and drove hour by hour past all the old familiar landmarks of my alfalfa meadows, and on to my upland pastures where my rotated crops of corn and barley and clover were ripe for harvesting and where I watched my men engaged in the harvest, while beyond. Ever climbing, my goats browsed the higher slopes of brush, into cleared tilled fields. But these were dreams, frank dreams, fancied adventures of my deductive subconscious mind. Quite unlike them, as you shall see, were my other adventures when I passed through the gates of the living death and relived the reality of the other lives that had been mine in other days. In the long hours of waking in the jacket I found that I dwelt a great deal on Cecil Winwood, the poet-forger who had wantonly put all this torment on me, and who was even then at liberty out in the free world again. No, I did not hate him. The word is too weak. There is no word in the language strong enough to describe my feelings. I can say only that I knew the gnawing of a desire for vengeance on him that was a pain in itself, and that exceeded all the bounds of language. I shall not tell you of the hours I devoted to plans of torture on him, nor of the diabolical means and devices of torture that I invented for him. Just one example. I was enamored of the ancient trick whereby an iron basin, containing a rat, is fastened to a man's body. The only way out for the rat is through the man himself. As I say, I was enamored of this until I realized that such a death was too quick, whereupon I dwelt long and favorably on the Moorish trick of. But no, I promise to relate no further of this matter. Let it suffice that many of my pain-maddening waking hours were devoted to dreams of vengeance on Cecil Winwood. Chapter 9 One thing of great value I learned in the long, pain-weary hours of waking, namely, the mastery of the body by the mind. I learned to suffer passively, as, undoubtedly, all men have learned who have passed through the postgraduate courses of straitjacketing. Oh, it is no easy trick to keep the brain in such serene repose that it is quite oblivious to the throbbing exquisite complaint of some tortured nerve. And it was this very mastery of the flesh by the spirit which I so acquired that enabled me easily to practice the secret Ed Morel told to me. Think it is curtains? Ed Morel rapped to me one night. I had just been released from one hundred hours, and I was weaker than I had ever been before. So weak was I that though my whole body was one mass of bruise and misery, nevertheless I scarcely was aware that I had a body. It looks like curtains. I rapped back. They will get me if they keep it up much longer. Don't let them, he advised. There is a way. I learned it myself, down in the dungeons, when Massey and I got ours good and plenty. I pulled through. But Massey croaked. If I hadn't learned the trick, I'd have croaked along with him. You've got to be pretty weak first, before you try it. If you try it when you are strong, you make a failure of it, and then that queers you forever after. I made the mistake of telling Jake the trick when he was strong. Of course, he could not pull it off, and in the time since when he did need it, it was too late, for his first failure had queered it. He won't even believe it now. He thinks I am kidding him. Ain't that right, Jake? And from cell 13 Jake rapped back. Don't swallow it, Daryl. It's a sure fairy story. Go on and tell me. I rapped to Morel. That is why I waited for you to get real weak. He continued. Now you need it, and I am going to tell you. It's up to you. If you have got the will you can do it. I've done it three times, and I know. Well, what is it? I rapped eagerly. The trick is to die in the jacket, 
to will yourself to die. I know you don't get me yet, but wait. You know how you get numb in the jacket, how your arm or your leg goes to sleep. Now you can't help that, but you can take it for the idea and improve on it. Don't wait for your legs or anything to go to sleep. You lie on your back as comfortable as you can get, and you begin to use your will. And this is the idea you must think to yourself, and that you must believe all the time you're thinking it. If you don't believe, then there's nothing to it. The thing you must think and believe is that your body is one thing and your spirit is another thing. You are you, and your body is something else that don't amount to shucks. Your body don't count. You're the boss. You don't need anybody. And thinking and believing all this you proceed to prove it by using your will. You make your body die. You begin with the toes, one at a time. You make your toes die. You will them to die. And if you've got the belief and the will your toes will die. That is the big job, to start the dying. Once you've got the first toe dead, the rest is easy, for you don't have to do any more believing. You know. Then you put all your will into making the rest of the body die. I tell you, Daryl, I know. I've done it three times. Once you get the dying started, it goes right along. And the funny thing is that you are all there all the time. Because your toes are dead don't make you in the least bit dead. By and by your legs are dead to the knees, and then to the thighs, and you are just the same as you always were. It is your body that is dropping out of the game a chunk at a time. And you are just you, the same you were before you began. And then what happens? I queried. Well, when your body is all dead, and you are all there yet, you just skin out and leave your body. And when you leave your body you leave the cell. Stone walls and iron doors are to hold bodies in. They can't hold the spirit in. You see, you have proved it. You are spirit outside of your body. You can look at your body from outside of it. I tell you I know because I have done it three times. Looked at my body lying there with me outside of it. Ha! 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 Jake Oppenheimer wrapped his laughter thirteen cells away. You see, that's Jake's trouble. Morel went on. He can't believe... That one time he tried it he was too strong and failed. And now he thinks I am kidding. When you die you are dead, and dead men stay dead. Oppenheimer retorted. I tell you I've been dead three times, Morel argued. And lived to tell us about it. Oppenheimer jeered. But don't forget one thing, Daryl. Morel rapped to me. The thing is ticklish. You have a feeling all the time that you are taking liberties. I can't explain it. But I always had a feeling if I was away when they came and let my body out of the jacket that I couldn't get back into my body again. I mean that my body would be dead for keeps. And I didn't want it to be dead. I didn't want to give Captain Jamie and the rest that satisfaction. But I tell you, Daryl, if you can turn the trick you can laugh at the warden. Once you make your body die that way it don't matter whether they keep you in the jacket a month on end. You don't suffer none, and your body don't suffer. You know there are cases of people who have slept a whole year at a time. That's the way it will be with your body. It just stays there in the jacket, not hurting or anything, just waiting for you to come back. You try it. I am giving you the straight steer. And if he don't come back? Oppenheimer asked. Then the laugh will be on him, I guess, Jake. Morel answered. Unless, maybe, it will be on us for sticking round this old dump when we could get away that easy. And here the conversation ended, for Pieface Jones, 
waking crustily from stolen slumber, threatened Morel and Oppenheimer with a report next morning that would mean the jacket for them. Me he did not threaten, for he knew I was doomed for the jacket anyway. I lay long there in the silence, forgetting the misery of my body while I considered this proposition Morel had advanced. Already, as I have explained, by mechanical self-hypnosis I had sought to penetrate back through time to my previous selves. That I had partly succeeded I knew, but all that I had experienced was a fluttering of apparitions that merged erratically and were without continuity. But Morel's method was so patently the reverse of my method of self-hypnosis that I was fascinated. By my method my consciousness went first of all. By his method consciousness persisted last of all, and when the body was quite gone, passed into stages so sublimated that it left the body, left the prison of San Quentin, and journeyed afar, and was still consciousness. It was worth a trial, anyway, I concluded. And despite the skeptical attitude of the scientist that was mine, I believed. I had no doubt I could do what Morel said he had done three times. Perhaps this faith that so easily possessed me was due to my extreme debility. Perhaps I was not strong enough to be skeptical. This was the hypothesis already suggested by Morel. It was a conclusion of pure empiricism, and I, too, as you shall see, demonstrated it empirically. Chapter 10 And above all things, next morning Warden Atherton came into my cell on murder intent. With him were Captain Jamie, Dr. Jackson, Pieface Jones, and Al Hutchins. Al Hutchins was serving a forty-year sentence, and was in hopes of being pardoned out. For four years he had been head trustee of San Quentin. That this was a position of great power you will realize when I tell you that the graft alone of the head trustee was estimated at $3,000 a year. Wherefore Al Hutchins, in possession of ten or twelve thousand dollars and of the promise of a pardon, could be depended upon to do the warden's bidding blind. I have just said that Warden Atherton came into my cell intent on murder. His face showed it. His actions proved it. Examine him. He ordered Dr. Jackson. That wretched apology of a creature stripped from me my dirt-encrusted shirt that I had worn since my entrance to solitary, and exposed my poor wasted body, the skin ridged like brown parchment over the ribs and sore infested from the many bouts with the jacket. The examination was shamelessly perfunctory. Will he stand it? The warden demanded. Yes, Dr. Jackson answered. How's the heart? Splendid. You think he'll stand ten days of it, Doc? Sure. I don't believe it, the warden announced savagely. But we'll try it just the same dot. Lie down, standing. I obeyed, stretching myself face downward on the flat spread jacket. The warden seemed to debate with himself for a moment. Roll over, he commanded. I made several efforts, but was too weak to succeed, and could only sprawl and squirm in my helplessness. Putting it on, was Jackson's comment. Well, he won't have to put it on when I'm done with him, said the warden. Lend him a hand. I can't waste any more time on him. So they rolled me over on my back, where I stared up into Warden Atherton's face. Standing, he said slowly. I've given you all the rope I am going to. I am sick and tired of your stubbornness. My patience is exhausted. Dr. Jackson says you are in condition to stand ten days in the jacket. You can figure your chances. But I am going to give you your last chance now. Come across with the dynamite. 
The moment it is in my hands I'll take you out of here. You can bathe and shave and get clean clothes. I'll let you loaf for six months on hospital grub, and then I'll put you trusty in the library. You can't ask me to be fairer with you than that. Besides, you're not squealing on anybody. You are the only person in San Quentin who knows where the dynamite is. You won't hurt anybody's feelings by giving in, and you'll be all to the good from the moment you do give in. And if you don't... He paused and shrugged his shoulders significantly. Well, if you don't, you start in the ten days right now. The prospect was terrifying. So weak was I that I was as certain as the warden was that it meant death in the jacket. And then I remembered Morel's trick. Now, if ever, was the need of it, and now, if ever, was the time to practice the faith of it. I smiled up in the face of Warden Atherton, and I put faith in that smile, and faith in the proposition I made to him. Warden, I said, do you see the way I am smiling? Well, if, at the end of the ten days, when you unlace me, I smile up at you in the same way, will you give a sack of bull durham and a package of brown papers to Morel and Oppenheimer? Ain't they the crazy ginks, these college guys? Captain Jamie snorted. Warden Atherton was a choleric man, and he took my request for insulting braggadocio. Just for that you'd get an extra cinching, he informed me. I made you a sporting proposition, Warden, I said quietly. You can cinch me as tight as you please, but if I smile ten days from now will you give the bull Durham to Morel and Oppenheimer? You are mighty sure of yourself, he retorted. That's why I made the proposition, I replied. Getting religion, eh? He sneered. No, was my answer. It merely happens that I possess more life than you can ever reach the end of. Make it a hundred days if you want, and I'll smile at you when it's over. I guess ten days will more than do you, Standing. That's your opinion, I said. Have you got faith in it? If you have, you won't even lose the price of the two five-cent sacks of tobacco. Anyway, what have you got to be afraid of? For two cents I'd kick the face off of you right now. He snarled. Don't let me stop you. I was impudently suave. Kick as hard as you please, and I'll still have enough face left with which to smile. In the meantime, while you are hesitating, suppose you accept my original proposition. A man must be terribly weak and profoundly desperate to be able, under such circumstances, to beard the warden in solitary or he may be both, and in addition, he may have faith. I know now that I had the faith, and so acted on it. I believed what Morel had told me. I believed in the lordship of the mind over the body. I believed that not even a hundred days in the jacket could kill me. Captain Jamie must have sensed this faith that informed me, for he said, I remember a Swede that went crazy twenty years ago. That was before your time, Warden. He'd killed a man in a quarrel over twenty-five cents and got life for it. He was a cook. He got religion. He said that a golden chariot was coming to take him to heaven, and he sat down on top the red-hot range and sang hymns and hasanas while he cooked. They dragged him off, but he croaked two days afterward in hospital. He was cooked to the bone, and to the end he swore he never felt the heat. Couldn't get a squeal out of him. We'll make standing squeal said the warden. Since you are so sure of it, why don't you accept my proposition? I challenged. The warden was so angry that it would have been ludicrous to me had I not been in so desperate plight. His face was convulsed. He clenched his hands, 
and for a moment, it seemed that he was about to fall upon me and give me a beating. Then, with an effort, he controlled himself. All right, standing, he snarled. I'll go you. But you bet your sweet life you'll have to go some to smile ten days from now. Roll him over, boys, and cinch him till you hear his ribs crack. Hutchins, show him you know how to do it. And they rolled me over and laced me as I had never been laced before. The head trusty certainly demonstrated his ability. I tried to steal what little space I could. Little it was, for I had long since shed my flesh, while my muscles were attenuated to mere strings. I had neither the strength nor bulk to steal more than a little, and the little I stole I swear I managed by sheer expansion at the joints of the bones of my frame. And of this little I was robbed by Hutchins, who in the old days before he was made head trusty, had learned all the tricks of the jacket from the inside of the jacket. You see, Hutchins was a cur at heart, or a creature who had once been a man, but who had been broken on the wheel. He possessed ten or twelve thousand dollars, and his freedom was in sight if he obeyed orders. Later, I learned that there was a girl who had remained true to him, and who was even then waiting for him. The woman factor explains many things of men. If ever a man deliberately committed murder, Al Hutchins did that morning in solitary at the warden's bidding. He robbed me of the little space I stole. And having robbed me of that, my body was defenseless, and with his foot in my back while he drew the lacing light, he constricted me as no man had ever before succeeded in doing. So severe was this constriction of my frail frame upon my vital organs that I felt, there and then, immediately, that death was upon me. And still the miracle of faith was mine. I did not believe that I was going to die. I knew, I say I knew, that I was not going to die. My head was swimming, and my heart was pounding from my toenails to the hair roots in my scalp. That's pretty tight, Captain Jamie urged reluctantly. The hell it is, said Dr. Jackson. I tell you nothing can hurt him. He's a wuss. He ought to have been dead long ago. Warden Atherton, after a hard struggle, managed to insert his forefinger between the lacing and my back. He brought his foot to bear upon me, with the weight of his body added to his foot, and pulled, but failed to get any fraction of an inch of slack. I take my hat off to you, Hutchins, he said. You know your job. Now roll him over and let's look at him. They rolled me over on my back. I stared up at them with bulging eyes. This I know. Had they laced me in such fashion the first time I went into the jacket, I would surely have died in the first ten minutes. But I was well trained. I had behind me the thousands of hours in the jacket, and plus that, I had faith in what Morel had told me. Now laugh, damn you, laugh, said the warden to me. Start that smile you've been bragging about. So, while my lungs panted for a little air, while my heart threatened to burst, while my mind reeled, Nevertheless I was able to smile up into the warden's face. Chapter 11 The door clanged, shutting out all but a little light, and I was left alone on my back. By the tricks I had long since learned in the jacket, I managed to ride myself across the floor an inch at a time until the edge of the sole of my right shoe touched the door. There was an immense cheer in this. I was not utterly alone. If the need arose, I could at least rap knuckle-talk to Morel but Warden Atherton must have left strict injunctions on the guards, for, though I managed to call Morel and tell him I intended trying the experiment, he was prevented by the guards from replying.
me they could only curse, for, in so far as I was in the jacket for a ten days' bout, I was beyond all threat of punishment. I remember remarking at the time my serenity of mind. The customary pain of the jacket was in my body, but my mind was so passive that I was no more aware of the pain than was I aware of the floor beneath me or the walls around me. Never was a man in better mental and spiritual condition for such an experiment. Of course, this was largely due to my extreme weakness. But there was more to it. I had long schooled myself to be oblivious to pain. I had neither doubts nor fears. All the content of my mind seemed to be an absolute faith in the overlordship of the mind. This passivity was almost dreamlike, and yet, in its way, it was positive almost to a pitch of exaltation. I began my concentration of will. Even then my body was numbing and prickling through the loss of circulation. I directed my will to the little toe of my right foot, and I willed that toe to cease to be alive in my consciousness. I willed that toe to die, to die so far as I, its lord, and a different thing entirely from it, was concerned. There was the hard struggle. Morel had warned me that it would be so. But there was no flicker of doubt to disturb my faith. I knew that that toe would die, and I knew when it was dead. Joint by joint it had died under the compulsion of my will. The rest was easy, but slow, I will admit. Joint by joint, toe by toe, all the toes of both my feet ceased to be. And joint by joint, the process went on. Came the time when my flesh below the ankles had ceased. Came the time when all below my knees had ceased. Such was the pitch of my perfect exaltation that I knew not the slightest prod of rejoicing at my success. I knew nothing save that I was making my body die. All that was I was devoted to that sole task. I performed the work as thoroughly as any mason laying bricks, and I regarded the work as just about as commonplace as would a brick mason regard his work. At the end of an hour my body was dead to the hips, and from the hips up, joint by joint, I continued to will the ascending death. It was when I reached the level of my heart that the first blurring and dizzying of my consciousness occurred. For fear that I should lose consciousness, I willed to hold the death I had gained, and shifted my concentration to my fingers. My brain cleared again, and the death of my arms to the shoulders was most rapidly accomplished. At this stage my body was all dead, so far as I was concerned, save my head and a little patch of my chest. No longer did the pound and smash of my compressed heart echo in my brain. My heart was beating steadily but feebly. The joy of it, had I dared joy at such a moment, would have been the cessation of sensations. At this point my experience differs from Morel's. Still willing automatically, I began to grow dreamy, as one does in that borderland between sleeping and waking. Also, it seemed as if a prodigious enlargement of my brain was taking place within the skull itself that did not enlarge. There were occasional glintings and flashings of light as if even I, the overlord, had ceased for a moment, and the next moment was again myself, still the tenant of the fleshly tenement that I was making to die. Most perplexing was the seeming enlargement of brain. Without having passed through the wall of skull, Nevertheless it seemed to me that the periphery of my brain was already outside my skull and still expanding. Along with this was one of the most remarkable sensations or experiences that I have ever encountered. Time and space, in so far as they were the stuff of my consciousness, underwent an enormous extension. Thus, without opening my eyes to verify, 
I knew that the walls of my narrow cell had receded until it was like a vast audience chamber. And while I contemplated the matter, I knew that they continued to recede. The wind struck me for a moment, that if a similar expansion were taking place with the whole prison, then the outer walls of San Quentin must be far out in the Pacific Ocean on one side and on the other side must be encroaching on the Nevada desert. A companion whim was that since matter could permeate matter then the walls of my cell might well permeate the prison walls, pass through the prison walls, and thus put my cell outside the prison and put me at liberty. Of course, this was pure fantastic whim, and I knew it at the time for what it was. The extension of time was equally remarkable. Only at long intervals did my heart beat. Again a whim came to me, and I counted the seconds, slow and sure, between my heartbeats. At first, as I clearly noted, over a hundred seconds intervened between beats. But as I continued to count the intervals extended so that I was made weary of counting. And while this illusion of the extension of time and space persisted and grew, I found myself dreamily considering a new and profound problem. Morel had told me that he had won freedom from his body by killing his body, or by eliminating his body from his consciousness, which, of course, was in effect the same thing. Now, my body was so near to being entirely dead that I knew in all absoluteness that by a quick concentration of will on the yet alive patch of my torso it, too, would cease to be. But, and here was the problem, and Morel had not warned me, should I also will my head to be dead? If I did so, no matter what befell the spirit of Daryl Standing, would not the body of Daryl Standing be forever dead? I chanced the chest and the slow-beating heart. The quick compulsion of my will was rewarded. I no longer had chest nor heart. I was only a mind, a soul, a consciousness, call it what you will, incorporate in a nebulous brain that, while it still centered inside my skull, was expanded, and was continuing to expand beyond my skull. And then, with flashings of light, I was off and away. At a bound I had vaulted prison roof and California sky, and was among the stars. I say stars, advisedly. I walked among the stars. I was a child. I was clad in frail, fleece-like, delicate-colored robes that shimmered in the cool starlight. These robes, of course, were based upon my boyhood observance of circus actors and my boyhood conception of the garb of young angels. Nevertheless, thus clad, I trod interstellar space, exalted by the knowledge that I was bound on vast adventure, where, at the end, I would find all the cosmic formulae and have made clear to me the ultimate secret of the universe. In my hand I carried a long glass wand. It was borne in upon me that with the tip of this wand I must touch each star in passing. And I knew, in all absoluteness, that did I but miss one star I should be precipitated into some unplummeted abyss of unthinkable and eternal punishment and guilt. Long I pursued my starry quest. When I say, Long! you must bear in mind the enormous extension of time that had occurred in my brain. For centuries I trod space, with the tip of my wand and with unerring eye and hand tapping each star I passed. Ever the way grew brighter. Ever the ineffable goal of infinite wisdom grew nearer. And yet I made no mistake. This was no other self of mine. This was no experience that had once been mine. I was aware all the time that it was I, Daryl Standing, who walked among the stars and tapped them with a wand of glass. In short, I knew that here was nothing real, nothing that had ever been nor could ever be. 
I knew that it was nothing else than a ridiculous orgy of the imagination, such as men enjoy in drug dreams, in delirium, or in mere ordinary slumber. And then, as all went merry and well with me on my celestial quest, the tip of my wand missed a star, and on the instant I knew I had been guilty of a great crime. And on the instant a knock, vast and compulsive, inexorable and mandatory as the stamp of the iron hoof of doom, smote me and reverberated across the universe. The whole sidereal system coruscated, reeled and fell in flame. I was torn by an exquisite and disruptive agony. And on the instant I was Daryl standing, the life convict, lying in his straight jacket and solitary. And I knew the immediate cause of that summons. It was a rap of the knuckle by Ed Morrell, in cell five, beginning the spelling of some message. And now, to give some comprehension of the extension of time and space that I was experiencing. Many days afterwards I asked Morel what he had tried to convey to me. It was a simple message, namely, Standing, are you there? He had tapped it rapidly, while the guard was at the far end of the corridor into which the solitary cells opened. As I say, he had tapped the message very rapidly. And now behold, between the first tap and the second I was off and away among the stars, clad in fleecy garments, touching each star as I passed in my pursuit of the formulae that would explain the last mystery of life. And, as before, I pursued the quest for centuries. Then came the summons, the stamp of the hoof of doom, the exquisite disruptive agony, and again I was back in my cell in San Quentin. It was the second tap of Ed Morel's knuckle. The interval between it and the first tap could have been no more than a fifth of a second. And yet, so unthinkably enormous was the extension of time to me, that in the course of that fifth of a second I had been away star-roving for long ages. Now I know, my reader, that the foregoing seems all a farrago. I agree with you. It is farrago. It was experience, however. It was just as real to me as is the snake beheld by a man in delirium tremens. Possibly, by the most liberal estimate, it may have taken Ed Morel two minutes to tap his question. Yet, to me, Ian's elapsed between the first tap of his knuckle and the last. No longer could I tread my starry path with that ineffable pristine joy, for my way was beset with dread of the inevitable summons that would rip and tear me as it jerked me back to my straitjacket hell. Thus my eons of star-wandering were eons of dread. And all the time I knew it was Ed Morel's knuckle that thus cruelly held me earthbound. I tried to speak to him, to ask him to cease. But so thoroughly had I eliminated my body from my consciousness that I was unable to resurrect it. My body lay dead in the jacket, though I still inhabited the skull. In vain I strove to will my foot to tap my message to Morel. I reasoned I had a foot. And yet, so thoroughly had I carried out the experiment, I had no foot. Next, and I know now that it was because Morel had spelled his message quite out, I pursued my way among the stars and was not called back. After that, and in the course of it, I was aware, drowsily, that I was falling asleep, and that it was delicious sleep. From time to time, drowsily I stirred, please, my reader, don't miss that verb, I stirred. I moved my legs, my arms. I was aware of clean, soft bed linen against my skin. I was aware of bodily well-being. Oh, it was delicious! As thirsting men on the desert dream of splashing fountains and flowing wells, so dreamed I of easement from the constriction of the jacket, of cleanliness in the place of filth, 
of smooth, velvety skin of health in place of my poor parchment-crinkled hide. But I dreamed with a difference, as you shall see. I awoke. Oh, broad and wide awake I was, although I did not open my eyes. And please know that in all that follows I knew no surprise whatever. Everything was the natural and the expected. I was I, be sure of that. But I was not Daryl Standing. Daryl Standing had no more to do with the being I was than did Daryl Standing's parchment-crinkled skin have aught to do with the cool, soft skin that was mine. Nor was I aware of any Daryl Standing, as I could not well be, considering that Daryl Standing was as yet unborn and would not be born for centuries. But you shall see. I lay with closed eyes, lazily listening. From without came the clacking of many hoofs moving orderly on stone flags. From the accompanying jingle of metal bits of man-harness and steed-harness I knew some cavalcade was passing by on the street beneath my windows. Also, I wondered idly who it was. From somewhere, and I knew where, for I knew it was from the inn-yard, came the ring and stamp of hoofs and an impatient neigh that I recognized as belonging to my waiting horse. Came steps and movements, steps openly advertised as suppressed with the intent of silence, and that yet were deliberately noisy with the secret intent of rousing me if I still slept. I smiled inwardly at the rascal's trick. Pons, I ordered, without opening my eyes. Water, cold water, quick, a deluge. I drank over long last night, and now my gullet scorches. And slept over long today, he scolded, as he passed me the water, ready in his hand. I sat up, opened my eyes and carried the tankard to my lips with both my hands. And as I drank I looked at Pons. Now note two things. I spoke in French. I was not conscious that I spoke in French. Not until afterward back in solitary, when I remembered what I am narrating, did I know that I had spoken in French, I, and spoken well. As for me, Daryl Standing, at present writing these lines in murderer's row of Folsom Prison, why? I know only high school French sufficient to enable me to read the language. As for my speaking it, impossible. I can scarcely intelligibly pronounce my way through a menu. But to return. Pons was a little withered old man. He was born in our house. I know, for it chance that mention was made of it this very day I am describing. Pons was all of sixty years. He was mostly toothless and despite a pronounced limp that compelled him to go slippity-hop, he was very alert and spry in all his movements. Also, he was impudently familiar. This was because he had been in my house sixty years. He had been my father's servant before I could toddle, and after my father's death, Pons and I talked of it this day, he became my servant. The limp he had acquired on a stricken field in Italy, when the horsemen charged across. He had just dragged my father clear of the hoofs when he was lanced through the thigh, overthrown, and trampled. My father, conscious but helpless from his own wounds, witnessed it all. And so, as I say, Pons had earned such a right to impudent familiarity that at least there was no gainsaying him by my father's son. Pons shook his head as I drained the huge draft. Did you hear it, Boyle? I laughed, as I handed back the empty tankard. Like your father, he said hopelessly. But your father lived to learn better, which I doubt you will do. He got a stomach affliction, I devilled, so that one mouthful of spirits turned it outside in. It were wisdom not to drink when one's tank will not hold the drink. 
while we talked Pons was gathering to my bedside my clothes for the day. Drink on, my master, he answered. It won't hurt you. You'll die with a sound stomach. You mean mine is an iron-lined stomach? I willfully misunderstood him. I mean, he began with a quick peevishness, then broke off as he realized my teasing and with a pout of his withered lips draped my new sable cloak upon a chair back. Eight hundred ducats, he sneered. A thousand goats and a hundred fat oxen in a coat to keep you warm. A score of farms on my gentleman's fine back. And in that a hundred fine farms, with a castle or two thrown in, to say nothing perhaps of a palace. I said, reaching out my hand and touching the rapier which he was just in the act of depositing on the chair. So your father won with his good right arm, Pons retorted. But what your father won he held. Here Pons paused to hold up to scorn my new scarlet satin doublet, a wondrous thing of which I had been extravagant. Sixty ducats for that, Pons indicted. Your father'd have seen all the tailors and Jews of Christendom roasting in hell before he'd a paid such a price. And while we dressed, that is, while Pons helped me to dress, I continued to quip with him. It is quite clear, Pons, that you have not heard the news, I said slyly whereat up pricked his ears like the old gossip he was. Late news? he queried. Mayhap from the English court? Nay, I shook my head. But news perhaps to you, but old news for all of that. Have you not heard? The philosophers of Greece were whispering at night two thousand years ago. It is because of that news that I put twenty fat farms on my back, live at court, and am become a dandy. You see, Pons, the world is a most evil place, life is most sad, all men die, and being dead, well are dead. Wherefore, to escape the evil and the sadness, men in these days, like me, seek amazement, insensibility, and the madnesses of dalliance. But the news, master? What did the philosophers whisper about so long ago? That God was dead, Pons, I replied solemnly. Didn't you know that? God is dead and I soon shall be, and I wear twenty fat farms on my back. God lives, Pons asserted fervently. God lives, and his kingdom is at hand. I tell you, master, it is at hand. It may be no later than tomorrow that the earth shall pass away. So said they in old Rome, Pons, when Nero made torches of them to light his sports. Pons regarded me pityingly. Too much learning is a sickness, he complained. I was always opposed to it. But you must have your will and drag my old body about with you, a studying astronomy and numbers in Venice, poetry and all the Italian falderoles in Florence, and astrology in Pisa, and God knows what in that madman country of Germany. Pish for the philosophers. I tell you, Master I, Pons, your servant, a poor old man who knows not a letter from a pike staff, I tell you God lives, and the time you shall appear before him is short. He paused with sudden recollection and added, He is here, the priest you spoke of. On the instant I remembered my engagement. Why did you not tell me before? I demanded angrily. What did it matter? Pons shrugged his shoulders. Has he not been waiting two hours as it is? Why didn't you call me? He regarded me with a thoughtful, censorious eye. And you rolling to bed and shouting like Chanticleer, Sing choo-choo, sing choo-choo, Choo-choo new new choo-choo, sing choo-choo, sing choo-choo, sing choo-choo, sing choo-choo. He mocked me with the senseless refrain in an ear-jangling falsetto.
Without doubt I had bawled the nonsense out on my way to bed. You have a good memory. I commented drilly, as I essayed a moment to drape my shoulders with the new sable cloak ere I tossed it to Pons to put aside. He shook his head sourly. No need of memory when you roared it over and over for the thousandth time till half the end was a knock at the door to spit you for the sleep killer you were. And when I had you decently in the bed, did you not call me to you in command, if the devil called, to tell him my lady slept? And did you not call me back again, and with a grip on my arm that leaves it bruised and black this day, command me, as I loved life, fat meat, and the warm fire, to call you not of the morning save for one thing? Which was... I prompted, unable for the life of me to guess what I could have said. Which was the heart of one, a black buzzard, you said, by name Martinelli, whoever he may be, for the heart of Martinelli smoking on a gold platter. The platter must be gold, you said, and you said I must call you by singing, sing choo-choo, sing choo-choo, sing choo-choo, whereat you began to teach me how to sing, sing choo-choo, sing choo-choo, sing choo-choo. And when Pons had said the name, I knew it at once for the priest. Martinelli, who had been knocking his heels two mortal hours in the room without. When Martinelli was permitted to enter and as he saluted me by title and name, I knew at once my name and all of it. I was Count Guillaume de Saint-Maur. You see, only could I know then, and remember afterward, what was in my conscious mind. The priest was Italian, dark and small, lean as with fasting or with a wasting hunger not of this world, and his hands were as small and slender as a woman's. But his eyes, they were cunning and trustless, narrow-slitted and heavy-lidded, at one and the same time as sharp as a ferret's and as indolent as a basking lizard's. There has been much delay, Count de saint Maur. He began promptly, when Pons had left the room at a glance from me. He whom I serve grows impatient. Change your tune, priest, I broke in angrily. Remember, you are not now in Rome. My august master, he began. Rules augustly in Rome, mayhap. I again interrupted. This is France. Martinelli shrugged his shoulders meekly and patiently, but his eyes, gleaming like a basilisk's, gave his shoulders the lie. My august master has some concern with the doings of France, he said quietly. The lady is not for you. My master has other plans. He moistened his thin lips with his tongue. Other plans for the lady, and for you. Of course, by the lady I knew he referred to the great Duchess Philippa, widow of Geoffrey, last Duke of Aquitaine. But great Duchess, widow, and all, Philippa was a woman, and young, and gay, and beautiful, and by my faith, fashioned for me. What are his plans? I demanded bluntly. They are deep and wide, Count St. Maur, too deep and wide for me to presume to imagine, much less know or discuss with you or any man. Oh, I know big things are afoot and slimy worms squirming underground, I said. They told me you were stubborn-necked, but I have obeyed commands. Martinelli arose to leave, and I arose with him. I said it was useless. He went on. But the last chance to change your mind was accorded you. My august master deals more fairly than fair. Oh, well, I'll think the matter over, I said airily, as I bowed the priest to the door. He stopped abruptly at the threshold. The time for thinking is past, he said. It is decision I came for. I will think the matter over. I repeated then added as afterthought. 
If the lady's plans do not accord with mine, then mayhap the plans of your master may fruit as he desires. For remember, priest, he is no master of mine. You do not know my master, he said solemnly. Nor do I wish to know him, I retorted. And I listened to the lithe, light step of the little intriguing priest go down the creaking stairs. Did I go into the minutiae of detail of all that I saw this half a day and half a night that I was Count Guillaume de Saint-Maur? Not ten books the size of this I am writing could contain the totality of the matter. Much I shall skip. In fact, I shall skip almost all, for never yet have I heard of a condemned man being reprieved in order that he might complete his memoirs, at least, not in California. When I rode out in Paris that day it was the Paris of centuries agone. The narrow streets were an unsanitary scandal of filth and slime. But I must skip. And skip I shall, all of the afternoon's events, all of the ride outside the walls, of the grand fate given by Hugh de Mung, of the feasting and the drinking in which I took little part. Only of the end of the adventure will I write, which begins with where I stood jesting with Philippa herself. Ah, dear God, she was wondrous beautiful. A great lady, I, but before that, and after that, and always a woman. We laughed and jested lightly enough, as about us jostled the merry throng, but under our jesting was the deep earnestness of man and woman well advanced across the threshold of love and yet not too sure each of the other. I shall not describe her. She was small, exquisitely slender, but there, I am describing her. In brief, she was the one woman in the world for me, and little I wrecked the long arm of that gray old man in Rome could reach out half across Europe between my woman and me. And the Italian, Fortini, leaned to my shoulder and whispered, One who desires to speak. One who must wait my pleasure, I answered shortly. I wait no man's pleasure, was his equally short reply. And while my blood boiled I remembered the priest, Martinelli, and the gray old man at Rome. The thing was clear. It was deliberate. It was the long arm. Fortini smiled lazily at me while I thus paused for the moment to debate, but in his smile was the essence of all insolence. This, of all times, was the time I should have been cool. But the old red anger began to kindle in me. This was the work of the priest. This was the Fortini, poverished of all save lineage, reckoned the best sword come up out of Italy in half a score of years. Tonight it was Fortini. If he failed the gray old man's command tomorrow it would be another sword, the next day another. And perchance still failing, then might I expect the common bravo's steel in my back or the common poisoner's filter in my wine, my meat, or bread. I am busy, I said. Be gone. My business with you presses, was his reply. Insensibly our voices had slightly risen, so that Philippa heard. Be gone, you Italian hound, I said. Take your howling from my door. I shall attend to you presently. The moon is up, he said. The grass is dry and excellent. There is no dew. Beyond the fish pond, an arrow's flight to the left, is an open space, quiet and private. Presently you shall have your desire, I muttered impatiently. But still he persisted in waiting at my shoulder. Presently, I said. Presently I shall attend to you. Then spoke Philippa, in all the daring spirit and the iron of her. Satisfy the gentleman's desire, St. Moore. Attend to him now. And good fortune go with you. She paused to beckon to her her uncle, Jean de Genville, 
who was passing, uncle on her mother's side, of the de Joinvilles of Anjou. Good fortune go with you, she repeated, and then leaned to me so that she could whisper. And my heart goes with you, Saint Moore. Do not be long. I shall awake you in the big hall. I was in the seventh heaven. I trod on air. It was the first frank admittance of her love. And with such benediction I was made so strong that I knew I could kill a score of fortinis and snap my fingers at a score of gray old men in Rome. Jean de Genville bore Filippo away in the press, and Fortini and I settled our arrangements in a trice. We separated, he to find a friend or so, and I to find a friend or so, and all to meet at the appointed place beyond the fish pond. First I found Robert Lanfranc, and next Henry Bohemond. But before I found them I encountered a window straw which showed which way blew the wind and gave promise of a very gale. I knew the window straw, Guy de Villahardouin, a raw young provincial, come up the first time to court, but a fiery little cockerel for all of that. He was red-haired. His blue eyes, small and pinched close together, were likewise red, at least in the whites of them, and his skin, of the sort that goes with such types, was red and freckled. He had quite a parbold appearance. As I passed him by a sudden movement he jostled me. Oh, of course, the thing was deliberate and he flamed at me while his hand dropped to his rapier. Faith, thought I, the gray old man has many and strange tools, while to the cockerel I bowed and murmured, Your pardon for my clumsiness. The fault was mine. Your pardon, Villahardouin. But he was not to be appeased thus easily. And while he fumed and strutted I glimpsed Robert Lanfranc, beckoned him to us, and explained the happening. St. Moore has accorded you satisfaction was his judgment. He has prayed your pardon. In truth, yes, I interrupted in my suavest tones. And I pray your pardon again, Villahardouin, for my very great clumsiness. I pray your pardon a thousand times. The fault was mine, though unintentioned. In my haste to an engagement I was clumsy, most woeful clumsy, but without intention. What could the dolt do but grudgingly accept the amends I so freely proffered him? Yet I knew, as Lanfranc and I hastened on, that ere many days, or hours, the flame-headed youth would see to it that we measured steel together on the grass. I explained no more to Lanfranc than my need of him, and he was little interested to pry deeper into the matter. He was himself a lively youngster of no more than twenty, but he had been trained to arms, had fought in Spain, and had an honorable record on the grass. Merely his black eyes flashed when he learned what was toward and such was his eagerness that it was he who gathered Henry Bohemond into our number. When the three of us arrived in the open space beyond the fishpond Fortini, and two friends were already waiting us. One was Felix Pasquini, nephew to the cardinal of that name, and as close in his uncle's confidence as was his uncle close in the confidence of the gray old man. The other was Raoul de Goncourt, whose presence surprised me, he being too good and noble a man for the company he kept. We saluted properly, and properly went about the business. It was nothing new to any of us. The footing was good, as promised. There was no dew. The moon shone fair, and Fortini's blade and mine were out and at earnest play. This I knew, good swordsmen as they reckoned me in France, Fortini was a better. This too I knew, that I carried my lady's heart with me this night, and that this night, because of me, there would be one Italian less in the world. I say I knew it. 
In my mind the issue could not be in doubt. And as our rapiers played I pondered the manner I should kill him. I was not minded for a long contest. Quick and brilliant had always been my way. And further, what of my past gay months of carousal and of singing? Sing choo-choo, sing choo-choo, sing choo-choo. At ungodly hours I knew I was not conditioned for a long contest. Quick and brilliant was my decision. But quick and brilliant was a difficult matter with so consummate a swordsman as Fortini opposed to me. Besides, as luck would have it, Fortini, always the cold one, always the tireless wrist, always sure and long, as report had it, and going about such business, on this night elected, too, the quick and brilliant. It was nervous, tingling work, for as surely as I sensed his intention of briefness, just as surely had he sensed mine. I doubt that I could have done the trick had it been broad day instead of moonlight. The dim light aided me. Also was I aided by divining, the moment in advance, what he had in mind. It was the time attack, a common but perilous trick that every novice knows, that has laid on his back many a good man who attempted it, and that is so fraught with danger to the perpetrator that swordsmen are not enamored of it. We had been at work barely a minute, when I knew under all his darting, flashing show of offense that Fortini meditated this very time attack. He desired of me a thrust and lunge, not that he might parry it but that he might time it and deflect it by the customary slight turn of the wrist, his rapier point directed to meet me as my body followed in the lunge. A ticklish thing, I, a ticklish thing in the best of light. Did he deflect a fraction of a second too early, I should be warned and saved. Did he deflect a fraction of a second too late, my thrust would go home to him. Quick and brilliant is it? was my thought. Very well, my Italian friend, quick and brilliant shall it be, and especially shall it be quick. In a way, it was time attack against time attack, but I would fool him on the time by being over quick. And I was quick. As I said, we had been at work scarcely a minute when it happened. Quick? That thrust and lunge of mine were one. A snap of action it was, an explosion, an instantaneousness. I swear my thrust and lunge were a fraction of a second quicker than any man is supposed to thrust and lunge. I won the fraction of a second. By that fraction of a second too late Fortini attempted to deflect my blade and impale me on his. But it was his blade that was deflected. It flashed past my breast, and I was in, inside his weapon, which extended full length in the empty air behind me, and my blade was inside of him, and through him, heart high from right side of him to left side of him and outside of him beyond. It is a strange thing to do, to spit a live man on a length of steel. I sit here in my cell, and cease from writing a space, while I consider the matter. And I have considered it often, that moonlight night in France of long ago, when I taught the Italian hound quick and brilliant. It was so easy a thing, that perforation of a torso. One would have expected more resistance. There would have been resistance had my rapier point touched bone. As it was, it encountered only the softness of flesh. Still it perforated so easily. I have the sensation of it now, in my hand, my brain, as I write. A woman's hatpin could go through a plum pudding not more easily than did my blade go through the Italian. Oh, there was nothing amazing about it at the time to Guillaume de Saint-Maur, but amazing it is to me, Daryl Standing, as I recollect and ponder it across the centuries. It is easy, most easy, to kill a strong, 
live, breathing man with so crude a weapon as a piece of steel. Why, men are like soft-shell crabs, so tender, frail, and vulnerable are they. But to return to the moonlight on the grass. My thrust made home, there was a perceptible pause. Not at once did Fortini fall. Not at once did I withdraw the blade. For a full second we stood in pause, I, with legs spread, and arched and tense, body thrown forward, right arm horizontal and straight out, Fortini, his blade beyond me so far that hilt and hand just rested lightly against my left breast, his body rigid, his eyes open and shining. So statuesque were we for that second that I swear those about us were not immediately aware of what had happened. Then Fortini gasped and coughed slightly. The rigidity of his pose slackened. The hilt and hand against my breast wavered, then the arm drooped to his side till the rapier point rested on the lawn. By this time Pasquini and de Goncourt had sprung to him, and he was sinking into their arms. In faith, it was harder for me to withdraw the steel than to drive it in. His flesh clung about it as if jealous to let it depart. Oh, believe me, it required a distinct physical effort to get clear of what I had done. But the pang of the withdrawal must have stung him back to life and purpose, for he shook off his friends, straightened himself, and lifted his rapier into position. I, too, took position, marveling that it was possible I had spitted him heart-high, and yet missed any vital spot. Then, and before his friends could catch him, his legs crumpled under him, and he went heavily to grass. They laid him on his back, but he was already dead, his face ghastly still under the moon, his right hand still a clutch of the rapier. Yes, it is indeed a marvelous easy thing to kill a man. We saluted his friends and were about to depart, when Felix Pasquini detained me. Pardon me, I said. Let it be tomorrow. We have but to move a step aside, he urged where the grass is still dry. Let me then wet it for you, St. Moore. Lanfranc asked of me, eager himself to do for an Italian. I shook my head. Pasquini is mine, I answered. He shall be first tomorrow. Are there others? Lanfranc demanded. Asked de Goncourt. I grinned. I imagine he is already laying claim to the honor of being the third. At this, de Goncourt showed distressed acquiescence. Lanfranc looked inquiry at him, and de Goncourt nodded. And after him I doubt not comes the cockerel. I went on. And even as I spoke the red-haired guy de Villahardouin, alone, strode to us across the moonlit grass. At least I shall have him. Lanfranc cried, his voice almost wheedling, so great was his desire. Ask him. I laughed, then turned to Pasquini. Tomorrow, I said. Do you name time and place? and I shall be there. The grass is most excellent, he teased. The place is most excellent, and I am minded that Fortini has you for company this night. Twere better he were accompanied by a friend. I quipped. And now your pardon, for I must go. But he blocked my path. Whoever it be, he said, let it be now. For the first time, with him, my anger began to rise. You serve your master well. I sneered. I serve but my pleasure, was his answer. Master, I have none. Pardon me if I presume to tell you the truth, I said. Which is, he queried softly, that you are a liar, Pasquini, a liar like all Italians. He turned immediately to Lanfranc and Bohemond. You heard, 
he said. And after that you cannot deny me him. They hesitated and looked to me for counsel of my wishes. But Pasquini did not wait. And if you still have any scruples, he hurried on, then allow me to remove them, thus. And he spat in the grass at my feet. Then my anger seized me and was beyond me. The red wrath I call it, an overwhelming, all-mastering desire to kill and destroy. I forgot that Philippa waited for me in the great hall. All I knew was my wrongs, the unpardonable interference in my affairs by the gray old man, the errand of the priest, the insolence of Fortini, the impudence of Villaharduin, and here Pasquini standing in my way and spitting in the grass. I saw red. I thought red. I looked upon all these creatures as rank and noisome growths that must be hewn out of my path, out of the world. As a netted lion may rage against the meshes, so raged I against these creatures. They were all about me. In truth, I was in the trap. The one way out was to cut them down, to crush them into the earth and stamp upon them. Very well, I said calmly enough, although my passion was such that my frame shook. You first, Pasquini. And you next, de Goncur? And at the end, de Villaharduin? Each nodded in turn and Pasquini and I prepared to step aside. Since you are in haste, Henry Bohemond proposed to me. And since there are three of them and three of us, why not settle it at the one time? Yes, yes, was Lanfranc's eager cry. Do you take de Goncur? De Villaharduin for mine. But I waved my good friends back. They are here by command. I explained. It is I they desire so strongly that by my faith I have caught the contagion of their desire, so that now I want them and will have them for myself. I had observed that Pasquini fretted at my delay of speech-making, and I resolved to fret him further. You, Pasquini, I announced, I shall settle with in short account. I would not that you tarried while Fortini waits your companionship. You, Raoul de Goncourt, I shall punish as you deserve for being in such bad company. You are getting fat and wheezy. I shall take my time with you until your fat melts and your lungs pant and wheeze like leaky bellows. You, de Villaharduin, I have not decided in what manner I shall kill. And then I saluted Pasquini, and we were at it. Oh, I was minded to be rarely devilish this night. Quick and brilliant, that was the thing. Nor was I unmindful of that deceptive moonlight. As with Fortini would I settle with him if he dared the time attack. If he did not, and quickly, then I would dare it. Despite the fret I had put him in, he was cautious. Nevertheless I compelled the play to be rapid, and in the dim light, depending less than usual on sight and more than usual on feel, our blades were in continual touch. Barely was the first minute of play passed when I did the trick. I feigned a slight slip of the foot, and in the recovery, feigned loss of touch with Pasquini's blade. He thrust tentatively, and again I feigned, this time making a needlessly wide parry. The consequent exposure of myself was the bait I had purposely dangled to draw him on. And draw him on I did. Like a flash he took advantage of what he deemed an involuntary exposure. Straight and true was his thrust, and all his will and body were heartily in the weight of the lunge he made. And all had been feigned on my part, and I was ready for him. Just lightly did my steel meet his as our blades slithered. And just firmly enough and no more did my wrist twist and deflect his blade on my basket hilt. Oh, such a slight deflection, a matter of inches, 
just barely sufficient to send his point past me so that it pierced the fold of my satin doublet in passing. Of course, his body followed his rapier in the lunge, while, heart high, right side, my rapier point met his body. And my outstretched arm was stiff and straight as the steel into which it elongated, and behind the arm and the steel my body was braced and solid. Heart high, I say, my rapier entered Pasquini's side on the right, but it did not emerge on the left, for well nigh through him, it met a rib, oh, man killing his butcher's work, with such a will that the forcing overbalanced him, so that he fell part backward and part sidewise to the ground. And even as he fell, and ere he struck, with jerk and wrench I cleared my weapon of him. De Goncourt was to him, but he waved de Goncourt to attend on me. Not so swiftly as Fortini did Pasquini pass. He coughed and spat, and helped by de Villahardouin, propped his elbow under him, rested his head on hand, and coughed and spat again. A pleasant journey, Pasquini. I laughed to him in my red anger. Pray hasten, for the grass where you lie is become suddenly wet, and if you linger you will catch your death of cold. When I made immediately to begin with de Goncourt, Bohemian protested that I should rest a space. Nay, I said. I have not properly warmed up. And to de Goncourt. Now will we have you dance and wheeze, salute. De Goncourt's heart was not in the work. It was patent that he fought under the compulsion of command. His play was old-fashioned, as any middle-aged man's is apt to be, but he was not an indifferent swordsman. He was cool, determined, dogged. But he was not brilliant, and he was oppressed with foreknowledge of defeat. A score of times, by quick and brilliant, he was mine. But I refrained. I have said that I was devilish-minded. Indeed I was. I wore him down. I backed him away from the moon so that he could see little of me because I fought in my own shadow. And while I wore him down until he began to wheeze as I had predicted, Pasquini, head on hand and watching, coughed and spat out his life. Now, de Goncourt, I announced finally. You see I have you quite helpless. You are mine in any of a dozen ways. Be ready, brace yourself, for this is the way I will. And, so saying, I merely went from cart to tierce and as he recovered wildly and parried widely I returned to cart, took the opening, and drove home heart-high and through and through. And at sight of the conclusion Pasquini let go his hold on life, buried his face in the grass, quivered a moment, and lay still. Your master will be four servants short this night, I assured de Villahardouin, in the moment just ere we engaged. And such an engagement. The boy was ridiculous. In what bucolic school of fence he had been taught was beyond imagining. He was downright clownish. Short work and simple, was my judgment, while his red hair seemed a bristle with very rage and while he pressed me like a man-man. Alas! It was his clownishness that undid me. When I had played with him and laughed at him for a handful of seconds for the clumsy burr he was, he became so angered that he forgot the worst and little fence he knew. With an arm-wide sweep of his rapier, as though it bore heft and a cutting edge, he whistled it through the air and wrapped it down on my crown. I was in a maze. Never had so absurd a thing happened to me. He was wide open, and I could have run him through forthright. But, as I said, I was in a maze, and the next I knew was the pang of the entering steel as this clumsy provincial ran me through and charged forward, bull-like, till his hill bruised my side and I was borne backward. 
As I fell I could see the concern on the faces of Lanfranc and Bohemond, and the glut of satisfaction in the face of de Villahardouin as he pressed me. I was falling, but I never reached the grass. Came a blur of flashing lights, a thunder in my ears, a darkness, a glimmering of dim lights slowly dawning, a wrenching, racking pain beyond all describing, and then I heard the voice of one who said, I can't feel anything. I knew the voice. It was Warden Atherton's. And I knew myself for Darrow Standing, just returned across the centuries to the jacket hell of San Quentin. And I knew the touch of fingertips on my neck was Warden Atherton's. And I knew the fingertips that displaced his were Dr. Jackson's. And it was Dr. Jackson's voice that said, You don't know how to take a man's pulse from the neck. There, right there, put your fingers where mine are. Do you get it? Ah, uh, I thought so. Heart weak, but steady as a chronometer. It's only twenty-four hours, Captain Jamie said. And he was never in like condition before. Putting it on, that's what he's doing, and you can stack on that. Al Hutchins, the head trustee, interjected. I don't know, Captain Jamie insisted. When a man's pulse is that low it takes an expert to find it. Ah, I served my apprenticeship in the jacket, Al Hutchins sneered. And I've made you unlace me, Captain, when you thought I was croaking, and it was all I could do to keep from snickering in your face. What do you think, Doc? Warden Atherton asked. I tell you the heart action is splendid, was the answer. Of course it is weak. That is only to be expected. I tell you Hutchins is right. The man is feigning. With his thumb he turned up one of my eyelids, whereat I opened my other eye and gazed up at the group bending over me. What did I tell you? was Dr. Jackson's cry of triumph. And then, although it seemed the effort must crack my face, I summoned all the will of me and smiled. They held water to my lips, and I drank greedily. It must be remembered that all this while I lay helpless on my back, my arms pinioned along with my body inside the jacket. When they offered me food, dry prison bread, I shook my head. I closed my eyes in advertisement that I was tired of their presence. The pain of my partial resuscitation was unbearable. I could feel my body coming to life. Down the cords of my neck and into my patch of chest over the heart-darting pains were making their way. And in my brain the memory was strong that Philip awaited me in the big hall, and I was desirous to escape away back to the half a day and half a night I had just lived in old France. So it was, even as they stood about me, that I strove to eliminate the live portion of my body from my consciousness. I was in haste to depart, but Warden Atherton's voice held me back. Is there anything you want to complain about? he asked. Now I had but one fear, namely, that they would unlace me, so that it must be understood that my reply was not uttered in braggadocio, but was meant to forestall any possible unlacing. You might make the jacket a little tighter, I whispered. It's too loose for comfort. I get lost in it. Hutchins is stupid. He is also a fool. He doesn't know the first thing about lacing the jacket. Warden, you ought to put him in charge of the loom room. He is a more profound master of inefficiency than the present incumbent, who is merely stupid without being a fool as well. Now get out, all of you, unless you can think of worse to do to me. In which case, by all means remain. I invite you heartily to remain, if you think in your feeble imaginings that you have devised fresh torture for me. 
He's a was, a true blue, died in the wool was. Dr. Jackson chanted, with the medico's delight in a novelty. Standing, you are a wonder, the warden said. You've got an iron will, but I'll break it as sure as God made little apples. And you've the heart of a rabbit, I retorted. One-tenth the jacketing I have received in San Quentin would have squeezed your rabbit heart out of your long ears. Oh, it was a touch, that, for the warden did have unusual ears. They would have interested Lombroso, I am sure. As for me, I went on. I laugh at you, and I wish no worse fate to the loom room than that you should take charge of it yourself. Why, you've got me down and worked your wickedness on me, and still I live and laugh in your face. Inefficient? You can't even kill me. Inefficient? You couldn't kill a cornered rat with a stick of dynamite, real dynamite, and not the sort you are deluded into believing I have hidden away. Anything more? He demanded, when I had ceased from my diatribe. And into my mind flashed what I had told Fortini when he pressed his insolence on me. Begone, you prison cur, I said. Take your yapping from my door. It must have been a terrible thing for a man of Warden Atherton's stripe to be thus bearded by a helpless prisoner. His face whitened with rage and his voice shook as he threatened. By God, standing, I'll do for you yet. There is only one thing you can do, I said. You can tighten this distressingly loose jacket. If you won't, then get out. And I don't care if you fail to come back for a week or for the whole ten days. And what can even the warden of a great prison do in reprisal on a prisoner upon whom the ultimate reprisal has already been wreaked? It may be that Warden Atherton thought of some possible threat, for he began to speak. But my voice had strengthened with the exercise, and I began to sing. Sing choo-choo, sing choo-choo, sing choo-choo. And sing I did until my door clanged and the bolts and locks squeaked and grated fast. Chapter 12 Now that I had learned the trick the way was easy. And I knew the way was bound to become easier the more I traveled it. Once establish a line of least resistance, every succeeding journey along it will find still less resistance. And so, as you shall see, my journeys from San Quentin life into other lives were achieved almost automatically as time went by. After Warden Atherton and his crew had left me it was a matter of minutes to will the resuscitated portion of my body back into the little death. Death in life it was, but it was only the little death, similar to the temporary death produced by an anesthetic. And so, from all that was sordid and vile, from brutal solitary and jacket hell, from acquainted flies and sweats of darkness and the knuckle-talk of the living dead, I was away at a bound into time and space. Came the duration of darkness, and the slow-growing awareness of other things and of another self. First of all, in this awareness, was dust. It was in my nostrils dry and acrid. It was on my lips. It coated my face, my hands, and especially was it noticeable on the fingertips when touched by the ball of my thumb. Next I was aware of ceaseless movement. All that was about me lurched and oscillated. There was jolt and jar, and I heard what I knew as a matter of course to be the grind of wheels on axles and the grate and clash of iron tires against rock and sand. And there came to me the jaded voices of men, in curse and snarl of slow-plodding, jaded animals. I opened my eyes that were inflamed with dust, and immediately fresh dust bit into them. On the coarse blankets on which I lay the dust was half an inch thick. Above me, through sifting dust, I saw an arched roof of lurching, swaying canvas, 
and myriads of dust motes descended heavily in the shafts of sunshine that entered through holes in the canvas. I was a child, a boy of eight or nine, and I was weary, as was the woman, dusty-visaged and haggard, who sat up beside me and soothed the crying babe in her arms. She was my mother, that I knew as a matter of course, just as I knew, when I glanced along the canvas tunnel of the wagon top, that the shoulders of the man on the driver's seat were the shoulders of my father. When I started to crawl along the pack gear with which the wagon was laden, my mother said in a tired and querulous voice, Can't you ever be still a minute, Jesse? That was my name, Jesse. I did not know my surname, though I heard my mother call my father John. I have a dim recollection of hearing, at one time or another, the other men address my father as captain. I knew that he was the leader of this company, and that his orders were obeyed by all. I crawled out through the opening in the canvas and sat down beside my father on the seat. The air was stifling with the dust that rose from the wagons and the many hoofs of the animals. So thick was the dust that it was like mist or fog in the air, and the low sun shone through it dimly and with a bloody light. Not alone was the light of this setting sun ominous, but everything about me seemed ominous, the landscape, my father's face, the fret of the babe in my mother's arms that she could not still, the six horses my father drove that had continually to be urged and that were without any sign of color, so heavily had the dust settled on them. The landscape was an aching, eye-hurting desolation. Low hills stretched endlessly away on every hand. Here and there only on their slopes were occasional scrub growths of heat-parched brush. For the most part the surface of the hills was naked dry and composed of sand and rock. Our way followed the sand bottoms between the hills. And the sand bottoms were bare, save for spots of scrub, with here and there short tufts of dry and withered grass. Water there was none, nor sign of water, except for washed gullies that told of ancient and torrential rains. My father was the only one who had horses to his wagon. The wagons went in single file, and as the train wound and curved I saw that the other wagons were drawn by oxen. Three or four yoke of oxen strained and pulled weakly at each wagon, and beside them, in the deep sand, walked men with ox goads, who prodded the unwilling beasts along. On a curve I counted the wagons ahead and behind. I knew that there were forty of them, including our own, for often I had counted them before. And as I counted them now, as a child will to while away tedium, they were all there, forty of them, all canvas-topped, big and massive, crudely fashioned, pitching and lurching, grinding and jarring over sand and sagebrush and rock. To right and left of us, scattered along the train, rode a dozen or fifteen men in use on horses. Across their pommels were long-barreled rifles. Whenever any of them drew near to our wagon I could see that their faces, under the dust, were drawn and anxious like my father's. And my father, like them, had a long-barreled rifle close to hand as he drove. Also, to one side, limped a score or more of footsore, yoke-galled skeleton oxen that ever paused to nip at the occasional tufts of withered grass, and that ever were prodded on by the tired-faced youths who herded them. Sometimes one or another of these oxen would pause and low and such lowing seemed as ominous as all else about me. Far, far away I have a memory of having lived, a smaller lad, by the tree-lined banks of a stream. And as the wagon jolts along, and I sway in the seat with my father, I continually return and dwell upon that pleasant water flowing between the trees. 
I have a sense that for an interminable period I have lived in a wagon and traveled on, ever on, with this present company. But strongest of all upon me is what is strong upon all the company, namely, a sense of drifting to doom. Our way was like a funeral march. Never did a laugh arise. Never did I hear a happy tone of voice. Neither peace nor ease marched with us. The faces of the men and youths who outrode the train were grim, set hopeless. And as we toiled through the lurid dust of sunset often I scanned my father's face in vain quest of some message of cheer. I will not say that my father's face, in all its dusty haggardness, was hopeless. It was dogged, and oh, so grim and anxious, most anxious. A thrill seemed to run along the train. My father's head went up. So did mine. And our horses raised their weary heads, scented the air with long-drawn snorts, and for the nonce pulled willingly. The horses of the outriders quickened their pace. And as for the herd of scarecrow oxen, it broke into a forthright gallop. It was almost ludicrous. The poor brutes were so clumsy in their weakness and haste. They were galloping skeletons draped in mangy hide, and they outdistanced the boys who herded them. But this was only for a time. Then they fell back to a walk, a quick, eager, shambling, sore-footed walk, and they no longer were lured aside by the dry bunch grass. What is it? My mother asked from within the wagon. Water, was my father's reply. It must be Nephi. And my mother. Thank God. And perhaps they will sell us food. And into Nephi, through blood-red dust, with grind and grate and jolt and jar, our great wagons rolled. A dozen scattered dwellings or shanties composed the place. The landscape was much the same as that through which we had passed. There were no trees, only scrub growths and sandy bareness. But here were signs of tilled fields, with here and there a fence. Also there was water. Down the stream ran no current. The bed, however, was damp, with now and again a water hole into which the loose oxen and the saddle horses stamped and plunged their muzzles to the eyes. Here, too, grew an occasional small willow. That must be Bill Black's mill they told us about, my father said, pointing out a building to my mother, whose anxiousness had drawn her to peer out over our shoulders. An old man, with buckskin shirt and long, matted, sunburned hair, rode back to our wagon and talked with father. The signal was given, and the head wagons of the train began to deploy in a circle. The ground favored the evolution, and from long practice, it was accomplished without a hitch, so that when the forty wagons were finally halted they formed a circle. All was bustle and orderly confusion. Many women, all tired-faced and dusty like my mother, emerged from the wagons. Also poured forth a very horde of children. There must have been at least fifty children, and it seemed I knew them all of long time, and there were at least two score of women. These went about the preparations for cooking supper. While some of the men chopped sagebrush, and we children carried it to the fires that were kindling, other men unyoked the oxen and let them stampede for water. Next the men, in big squads, moved the wagon snugly into place. The tongue of each wagon was on the inside of the circle, and front and rear, each wagon was in solid contact with the next wagon before and behind. The great brakes were locked fast, but not content with this, the wheels of all the wagons were connected with chains. This was nothing new to us children. It was the trouble sign of a camp in hostile country. One wagon only was left out of the circle, 
so as to form a gate to the corral. Later on, as we knew, ere the camp slept, the animals would be driven inside, and the gate wagon would be chained like the others in place. In the meanwhile, and for hours, the animals would be herded by men and boys to what scant grass they could find. While the camp-making went on my father, with several others of the men, including the old man with the long, sunburned hair, went away on foot in the direction of the mill. I remember that all of us, men, women, and even the children, paused to watch them depart, and it seemed their errand was of grave import. While they were away other men, strangers, inhabitants of desert Nephi, came into camp and stalked about. They were white men, like us, but they were hard-faced, stern-faced, somber, and they seemed angry with all our company. Bad feeling was in the air, and they said things calculated to rouse the tempers of our men. But the warning went out from the women, and was passed on everywhere to our men and youths, that there must be no words. One of the strangers came to our fire, where my mother was alone, cooking. I had just come up with an armful of sagebrush, and I stopped to listen and to stare at the intruder, whom I hated, because it was in the air to hate, because I knew that every last person in our company hated these strangers who were white-skinned like us and because of whom we had been compelled to make our camp in a circle. This stranger at our fire had blue eyes, hard and cold and piercing. His hair was sandy. His face was shaven to the chin, and from under the chin, covering the neck and extending to the ears, sprouted a sandy fringe of whiskers well streaked with gray. Mother did not greet him, nor did he greet her. He stood and glowered at her for some time. He cleared his throat and said with a sneer, Wish you was back in Missouri right now, I bet. I saw Mother tighten her lips in self-control ere she answered. We are from Arkansas. I guess you got good reasons to deny where you come from, he next said. You that drove the Lord's people from Missouri. Mother made no reply. Seein', he went on, after the pause accorded her. As you're now comin' a whinin' and a beggin' bread at our hands that you persecuted. Whereupon, and instantly, child that I was, I knew anger, the old, red, intolerant wrath, ever unrestrainable and unsubduable. You lie, I piped up. We ain't Missourians. We ain't whinin'. And we ain't beggars. We got the money to buy. Shut up, Jesse, my mother cried, landing the back of her hand stingingly on my mouth. And then, to the stranger, Go away and let the boy alone. I'll shoot you full of lead, you damned Mormon. I screamed and sobbed at him, too quick for my mother this time, and dancing away around the fire from the back sweep of her hand. As for the man himself, my conduct had not disturbed him in the slightest. I was prepared for I knew not what violent visitation from this terrible stranger, and I watched him warily while he considered me with the utmost gravity. At last he spoke, and he spoke solemnly, with solemn shaking of the head, as if delivering a judgment. Like fathers like sons, he said. The young generation is as bad as the elder. The whole breed is unregenerate and damned. There is no saving it, the young or the old. There is no atonement. Not even the blood of Christ can wipe out its iniquities. Damned Mormon, was all I could sob at him. Damned Mormon. Damned Mormon! Damned Mormon! And I continued to damn him and to dance around the fire before my mother's avenging hand, until he strode away. When my father, and the men who had accompanied him, returned, camp work ceased, while all crowded anxiously about him.
he shook his head. They will not sell? Some woman demanded. Again he shook his head. A man spoke up, a blue-eyed, blonde-whiskered giant of thirty, who abruptly pressed his way into the center of the crowd. They say they have flour and provisions for three years, Captain, he said. They have always sold to the immigration before. And now they won't sell. And it ain't our quarrel. Their quarrels with the government, and they're talking it out on us. It ain't right, Captain. It ain't right, I say, us with our women and children, and California months away, winter coming on, and nothing but desert in between. We ain't got the grub to face the desert. He broke off for a moment to address the whole crowd. Why, you all don't know what desert is. This around here ain't desert. I tell you it's paradise, and heavenly pasture, and flowing with milk and honey alongside what we're going to face. I tell you, Captain, we got to get flour first. If they won't sell it, then we must just up and take it. Many of the men and women began crying out in approval, but my father hushed them by holding up his hand. I agree with everything you say, Hamilton, he began. But the cries now drowned his voice, and he again held up his hand. Except one thing you forgot to take into account, Hamilton, a thing that you and all of us must take into account. Brigham Young has declared martial law, and Brigham Young has an army. We could wipe out Nephi in the shake of a lamb's tail and take all the provisions we can carry. But we wouldn't carry them very far. Brigham's saints would be down upon us and we would be wiped out in another shake of a lamb's tail. You know it. I know it. We all know it. His words carried conviction to listeners already convinced. What he had told them was old news. They had merely forgotten it in a flurry of excitement and desperate need. Nobody will fight quicker for what is right than I will. Father continued. But it just happens we can't afford to fight now. If ever eruption starts we haven't a chance. And we've all got our women and children to recollect. We've got to be peaceable at any price, and put up with whatever dirt is heaped on us. But what will we do with the desert coming? Cried a woman who nursed a babe at her breast. There's several settlements before we come to the desert. Father answered. Fillmore's sixty miles south, then comes Corn Creek, and Beaver's another fifty miles. Next is Perowin, then it's twenty miles to Cedar City. The farther we get away from Salt Lake the more likely they'll sell us provisions. And if they won't, the same woman persisted. Then we're quit of them, said my father. Cedar City is the last settlement. We'll have to go on, that's all, and thank our stars we are quit of them. Two days' journey beyond is good pasture and water. They call it Mountain Meadows. Nobody lives there, and that's the place we'll rest our cattle and feed them up before we tackle the desert. Maybe we can shoot some meat. And if the worst comes to the worst, we'll keep going as long as we can, then abandon the wagons, pack what we can on our animals, and make the last stages on foot. We can eat our cattle as we go along. It would be better to arrive in California without a rag to our backs than to leave our bones here, and leave them we will if we start eruption. With final reiterated warnings against violence of speech or act, the impromptu meeting broke up. I was slow in falling asleep that night. My rage against the Mormon had left my brain in such a tingle that I was still awake when my father crawled into the wagon after a last round of the night watch. They thought I slept but I heard mother ask him if he thought that the Mormons would let us depart peacefully from their land. 
His face was turned aside from her, as he busied himself with pulling off a boot, while he answered her with hearty confidence that he was sure the Mormons would let us go if none of our own company started trouble. But I saw his face at that moment in the light of a small tallow dip, and in it was none of the confidence that was in his voice. So it was that I fell asleep, oppressed by the dire fate that seemed to overhang us, and pondering upon Brigham Young who bulked in my child imagination as a fearful, malignant being, a very devil with horns and tail and all. And I awoke to the old pain of the jacket and solitary. About me were the customary four, Warden Atherton, Captain Jamie, Dr. Jackson, and Al Hutchins. I cracked my face with my willed smile, and struggled not to lose control under the exquisite torment of returning circulation. I drank the water they held to me, waved aside the proffered bread, and refused to speak. I closed my eyes and strove to win back to the chain-locked wagon circle at Nephi. But so long as my visitors stood about me and talked I could not escape. One snatch of conversation I could not tear myself away from hearing. Just as yesterday, Dr. Jackson said. No change one way or the other. Then he can go on standing it? Warden Atherton queried. Without a quiver. The next twenty-four hours as easy as the last. He's a wuz, I tell you, a perfect wuz. If I didn't know it was impossible, I'd say he was doped. I know his dope, said the warden. It's that cursed will of his. I'd bet, if he made up his mind, that he could walk barefoot across red-hot stones, like those Kanaka priests from the South Seas. Now perhaps it was the word, priests, that I carried away with me through the darkness of another flight in time. Perhaps it was the cue. More probably it was a mere coincidence. At any rate I awoke, lying upon a rough rocky floor, and found myself on my back, my arms crossed in such fashion that each elbow rested in the palm of the opposite hand. As I lay there, eyes closed, half awake, I rubbed my elbows with my palms and found that I was rubbing prodigious calluses. There was no surprise in this. I accepted the calluses as of long time and a matter of course. I opened my eyes. My shelter was a small cave, no more than three feet in height and a dozen in length. It was very hot in the cave. Perspiration nodded the entire surface of my body. Now and again several nodules coalesced and formed tiny rivulets. I wore no clothing save a filthy rag about the middle. My skin was burned to a mahogany brown. I was very thin, and I contemplated my thinness with a strange sort of pride, as if it were an achievement to be so thin. Especially was I enamored of my painfully prominent ribs. The very sight of the hollows between them gave me a sense of solemn elation, or, rather, to use a better word, of sanctification. My knees were callous like my elbows. I was very dirty. My beard, evidently once blonde, but now a dirt-stained and streaky brown, swept my midriff in a tangled mass. My long hair, similarly stained and tangled, was all about my shoulders, while wisps of it continually strayed in the way of my vision so that sometimes I was compelled to brush it aside with my hands. For the most part, however, I contented myself with peering through it like a wild animal from a thicket. Just at the tunnel-like mouth of my dim cave the day reared itself in a wall of blinding sunshine. After a time I crawled to the entrance, and for the sake of greater discomfort, lay down in the burning sunshine on a narrow ledge of rock. It positively baked me, that terrible sun, and the more it hurt me the more I delighted in it, 
or in myself rather, in that I was thus the master of my flesh and superior to its claims and remonstrances. When I found under me a particularly sharp, but not too sharp, rock projection, I ground my body upon the point of it, roweled my flesh in a very ecstasy of mastery and of purification. It was a stagnant day of heat. Not a breath of air moved over the river valley on which I sometimes gazed. Hundreds of feet beneath me the wide river ran sluggishly. The farther shore was flat and sandy and stretched away to the horizon. Above the water were scattered clumps of palm trees. On my side, eaten into a curve by the river, were lofty, crumbling cliffs. Farther along the curve, in plain view from my airy, carved out of the living rock, were four colossal figures. It was the stature of a man to their ankle joints. The four colossi sat, with hands resting on knees, with arms crumbled quite away, and gazed out upon the river. At least three of them so gazed. Of the fourth all that remained were the lower limbs to the knees and the huge hands resting on the knees. At the feet of this one, ridiculously small, crouched a sphinx, yet this sphinx was taller than I. I looked upon these carven images with contempt, and spat as I looked. I knew not what they were, whether forgotten gods or unremembered kings. But to me they were representative of the vanity of earth men and earth aspirations. And over all this curve of river and sweep of water and wide sands beyond arched a sky of aching brass unflecked by the tiniest cloud. The hours passed while I roasted in the sun often, for quite decent intervals, I forgot my heat and pain in dreams and visions and in memories. All this I knew, crumbling colossi and river and sand and sun and brazen sky, was to pass away in the twinkling of an eye. At any moment the trumps of the archangels might sound, the stars fall out of the sky, the heavens roll up as a scroll, and the Lord God of all come with his hosts for the final judgment. Ah, I knew it so profoundly that I was ready for such sublime event. That was why I was here in rags and filth and wretchedness. I was meek and lowly, and I despised the frail needs and passions of the flesh. And I thought with contempt, and with a certain satisfaction, of the far cities of the plain I had known, all unheeding, in their pomp and lust, of the last day so near at hand. Well, they would see soon enough, but too late for them. And I should see. But I was ready. And to their cries and lamentations would I arise, reborn and glorious, and take my well-earned and rightful place in the city of God. At times, between dreams and visions in which I was verily and before my time in the city of God, I conned over in my mind old discussions and controversies. Yes, Novatus was right in his contention that penitent apostates should never again be received into the churches. Also, there was no doubt that Sabellianism was conceived of the devil. So was Constantine, the archfiend, the devil's right hand. Continually I returned to contemplation of the nature of the unity of God, and went over and over the contentions of Noetus, the Syrian. Better, however, did I like the contentions of my beloved teacher, Arius. Truly, if human reason could determine anything at all, there must have been a time, in the very nature of sonship, when the sun did not exist. In the nature of sonship there must have been a time when the sun commenced to exist. A father must be older than his son. To hold otherwise were a blasphemy and a belittlement of God. And I remembered back to my young days when I had sat at the feet of Arius, who had been a presbyter of the city of Alexandria, and who had been robbed of the bishopric by the blasphemous and heretical Alexander. Alexander the Sabellianite, 
that is what he was, and his feet had fast hold of hell. Yes, I had been to the council of Nicaea, and seen it avoid the issue. And I remembered when the emperor Constantine had banished Arius for his uprightness. And I remembered when Constantine repented for reasons of state and policy and commanded Alexander, the other Alexander, thrice cursed, bishop of Constantinople, to receive Arius into communion on the morrow. And that very night did not Arius die in the street? They said it was a violent sickness visited upon him in answer to Alexander's prayer to God. But I said, and so said all we Arians, that the violent sickness was due to a poison, and that the poison was due to Alexander himself, bishop of Constantinople and devil's poisoner. And here I ground my body back and forth on the sharp stones, and muttered aloud, drunk with conviction. Let the Jews and pagans mock. Let them triumph, for their time is short. And for them there will be no time after time. I talked to myself aloud a great deal on that rocky shelf overlooking the river. I was feverish, and on occasion I drank sparingly of water from a stinking goatskin. This goatskin I kept hanging in the sun that the stench of the skin might increase, and that there might be no refreshment of coolness in the water. Food there was, lying in the dirt on my cave floor, a few roots and a chunk of moldy barley cake, and hungry I was, although I did not eat. All I did that blessed, Live long day was to sweat and swelter in the sun, mortify my lean flesh upon the rock, gaze out of the desolation, resurrect old memories, dream dreams, and mutter my convictions aloud. And when the sun set, in the swift twilight I took a last look at the world so soon to pass. About the feet of the colossi I could make out the creeping forms of beasts that laired in the once proud works of men. And to the snarls of the beasts I crawled into my hole, and, muttering and dozing, Visioning fevered fancies and praying that the last day come quickly, I ebbed down into the darkness of sleep. Consciousness came back to me in solitary, with the quartet of torturers about me. Blasphemous and heretical warden of San Quentin whose feet have fast hold of hell. I jibed, after I had drunk deep of the water they held to my lips. Let the jailers and the trustees triumph. Their time is short, and for them there is no time after time. He's out of his head, Warden Atherton affirmed. He's putting it over on you, was Dr. Jackson's sure judgment. But he refuses food, Captain Jamie protested. Ha, he could fast forty days and not hurt himself, the doctor answered. And I have, I said, and forty nights as well. Do me the favor to tighten the jacket and then get out of here. The head trusty tried to insert his forefinger inside the lacing. You couldn't get a quarter of an inch of slack with block and tackle, he assured them. Have you any complaint to make standing? the warden asked. Yes, was my reply. On two counts. What are they? First, I said, the jacket is abominably loose. Hutchins is an ass. He could get a foot of slack if he wanted. What is the other count? Warden Atherton asked. That you are conceived of the devil, warden. Captain Jamie and Dr. Jackson tittered, and the warden, with a snort, led the way out of my cell. Left alone, I strove to go into the dark and gain back to the wagon circle at Nephi. I was interested to know the outcome of that doomed drifting of our forty great wagons across a desolate and hostile land, and I was not at all interested in what came of the mangy hermit with his rock roweled ribs and stinking water skin. And I gained back, either to Nephi nor the Nile, 
but two. But here I must pause in the narrative, my reader, in order to explain a few things and make the whole matter easier to your comprehension. This is necessary, because my time is short in which to complete my jacket memoirs. In a little while, in a very little while, they are going to take me out and hang me. Did I have the full time of a thousand lifetimes, I could not complete the last details of my jacket experiences. Wherefore I must briefen the narrative. First of all, Bergson is right. Life cannot be explained in intellectual terms. As Confucius said long ago, When we are so ignorant of life, can we know death? And ignorant of life we truly are when we cannot explain it in terms of the understanding. We know life only phenomenally, as a savage may know a dynamo, but we know nothing of life nominally, nothing of the nature of the intrinsic stuff of life. Secondly, Marinetti is wrong when he claims that matter is the only mystery and the only reality. I say and as you, my reader, realize I speak with authority. I say that matter is the only illusion. Comte called the world, which is tantamount to matter, the great fetish, and I agree with Comte. It is life that is the reality and the mystery. Life is vastly different from mere chemic matter fluxing in high modes of notion. Life persists. Life is the thread of fire that persists through all the modes of matter. I know. I am life. I have lived ten thousand generations. I have lived millions of years. I have possessed many bodies. I, the possessor of these many bodies, have persisted. I am life. I am the unquenched spark ever flashing and astonishing the face of time, ever working my will and wreaking my passion on the cloudy aggregates of matter, called bodies, which I have transiently inhabited. For look you, this finger of mine, so quick with sensation, so subtle to feel, so delicate in its multifarious dexterities, so firm and strong to crook and bend or stiffen by means of cunning leverages, this finger is not I. Cut it off. I live. The body is mutilated. I am not mutilated. The spirit that is I is whole. Very well. Cut off all my fingers. I am I. The spirit is entire. Cut off both hands. Cut off both arms at the shoulder sockets. Cut off both legs at the hip sockets. And I, the unconquerable and indestructible I, survive. Am I any the less for these mutilations, for these subtractions of the flesh? Certainly not. Clip my hair. Shave from me with sharp razors my lips, my nose, my ears, I, and tear out the eyes of me by the roots. And there, mute in that featureless skull that is attached to a hacked and mangled torso, there in that cell of the chemic flesh, will still be I, unmutilated, undiminished. Oh, the heart still beats. Very well. Cut out the heart, or, better, fling the flesh remnant into a machine of a thousand blades and make mincemeat of it, and I, I, don't you understand, all the spirit and the mystery and the vital fire and life of me, am off and away. I have not perished. Only the body has perished, and the body is not I. I believe Colonel de Roches was correct when he asserted that under the compulsion of his will he sent the girl Josephine, while she was in hypnotic trance back through the eighteen years she had lived, back through the silence and the dark air she had been born, back to the light of a previous living when she was a bedridden old man, the ex-artilleryman, Jean-Claude Borden. And I believe that Colonel de Roches did truly hypnotize this resurrected shade of the old man and, by compulsion of will, send him back through the seventy years of his life, 
back into the dark and through the dark into the light of day when he had been the wicked old woman, Philomene Cartron. Already, have I not shown you, my reader, that in previous times, inhabiting various cloddy aggregates of matter, I have been Count Guillaume de Saint-Maur, a mangy and nameless hermit of Egypt, and the boy Jesse, whose father was captain of forty wagons in the great westward emigration. And also, am I not now, as I write these lines, Daryl Standing, under sentence of death in fulsome prison and one-time professor of agronomy in the College of Agriculture of the University of California? Matter is the great illusion. That is, matter manifests itself in form, and form is apparitional. Where, now, are the crumbling rock cliffs of old Egypt where once I laired me like a wild beast while I dreamed of the city of God? Where, now, is the body of Guillaume de Saint-Maur that was thrust through on the moonlit grass so long ago by the flame-headed Guy de Villahardouin? Where, now, are the forty great wagons in the circle at Nephi, and all the men and women and children and lean cattle that sheltered inside that circle? All such things no longer are, for they were forms, manifestations of fluxing matter ere they melted into the flux again. They have passed and are not. And now my argument becomes plain. The spirit is the reality that endures. I am spirit, and I endure. I, Daryl Standing, the tenant of many fleshly tenements, shall write a few more lines of these memoirs and then pass on my way. The form of me that is my body will fall apart when it has been sufficiently hanged by the neck, and of it not will remain in all the world of matter. In the world of spirit the memory of it will remain. Matter has no memory, because its forms are evanescent and what is engraved on its forms perishes with the forms. One word more ere I return to my narrative. In all my journeys through the dark into other lives that have been mine I have never been able to guide any journey to a particular destination. Thus many new experiences of old lives were mine before ever I chanced to return to the boy Jesse at Nephi. Possibly, all told, I have lived over Jesse's experiences a score of times, sometimes taking up his career when he was quite small in the Arkansas settlements, and at least a dozen times carrying on past the point where I left him at Nephi. It were a waste of time to detail the whole of it, and so, without prejudice to the verity of my account, I shall skip much that is vague and tortuous and repetitional, and give the facts as I have assembled them out of the various times, in whole and part, as I relived them. Chapter 13 Long before daylight the camp at Nephi was astir. The cattle were driven out to water and pasture. While the men unchained the wheels and drew the wagons apart and clear for yoking in, the women cooked forty breakfasts over forty fires. The children, in the chill of dawn, clustered about the fires, sharing places, here and there, with the last relief of the night watch waiting sleepily for coffee. It requires time to get a large train such as ours underway, for its speed is the speed of the slowest. So the sun was an hour high and the day was already uncomfortably hot when we rolled out of Nephi and on into the sandy barrens. No inhabitant of the place saw us off. All chose to remain indoors, thus making our departure as ominous as they had made our arrival the night before. Again it was long hours of parching heat and biting dust, sagebrush and sand, and a land accursed. No dwellings of men, either cattle nor fences, nor any sign of humankind, did we encounter all that day, and at night we made our wagon circle beside an empty stream, in the damp sand of which we dug many holes that filled slowly with water seepage. Our subsequent journey is always a broken experience to me. 
We made camp so many times, always with the wagons drawn in circle, that to my child mind a weary long time passed after Nephi. But always, strong upon all of us, was that sense of drifting to an impending and certain doom. We averaged about fifteen miles a day. I know, for my father had said it was sixty miles to Fillmore, the next Mormon settlement, and we made three camps on the way. This meant four days of travel. From Nephi to the last camp of which I have any memory we must have taken two weeks or a little less. At Fillmore the inhabitants were hostile, as all had been since Salt Lake. They laughed at us when we tried to buy food, and were not above taunting us with being Missourians. When we entered the place, hitched before the largest house of the dozen houses that composed the settlement were two saddle horses, dusty, streaked with sweat, and drooping. The old man I have mentioned, the one with long, sunburned hair and buckskin shirt and who seemed a sort of aide or lieutenant to father, rode close to our wagon and indicated the jaded saddle animals with a cock of his head. Not sparin' horseflesh, Captain, he muttered in a low voice. And what in the name of Sam Hill are they hard riding for if it ain't for us? But my father had already noted the condition of the two animals, and my eager eyes had seen him. And I had seen his eyes flash, his lips tighten, and haggard lines form for a moment on his dusty face. That was all. But I put two and two together, and knew that the two tired saddle horses were just one more added touch of ominousness to the situation. I guess they're keeping an eye on us, Laban, was my father's sole comment. It was at Fillmore that I saw a man that I was to see again. He was a tall, broad-shouldered man, well on in middle age, with all the evidence of good health and immense strength, strength not alone of body but of will. Unlike most men I was accustomed to about me, he was smooth-shaven. Several days' growth of beard showed that he was already well-grayed. His mouth was unusually wide, with thin lips tightly compressed as if he had lost many of his front teeth. His nose was large, square, and thick. So was his face square, wide between the cheekbones, underhung with massive jaws, and topped with a broad, intelligent forehead. And the eyes, rather small, a little more than the width of an eye apart, were the bluest blue I had ever seen. It was at the flour mill at Fillmore that I first saw this man. Father, with several of our company, had gone there to try to buy flour, and I, disobeying my mother in my curiosity to see more of our enemies, had tagged along unperceived. This man was one of four or five who stood in a group with the miller during the interview. You seen that smooth-faced old cuss? Laban said to father, after we had got outside and were returning to camp. Father nodded. Well, that's Lee, Laban continued. I seen him in Salt Lake. He's a regular son of a gun. Got nineteen wives and fifty children, they all say. And he's rank crazy on religion. Now, what's he following us up for through this godforsaken country? Our weary, doomed drifting went on. The little settlements, wherever water and soil permitted, were from twenty to fifty miles apart. Between stretched the barrenness of sand and alkali and drought. And at every settlement our peaceful attempts to buy food were vain. They denied us harshly, and wanted to know who of us had sold them food when we drove them from Missouri. It was useless on our part to tell them we were from Arkansas. From Arkansas we truly were, but they insisted on our being Missourians. At Beaver, five days' journey south from Fillmore, we saw Lee again and again we saw hard-ridden horses tethered before the houses. 
But we did not see Lee at Peroin. Cedar City was the last settlement. Laban, who had ridden on ahead, came back and reported to father. His first news was significant. I seen that Lee skedaddling out as I ridden, Captain. And there's more men folk and horses in Cedar City than the size of the place de warrant. But we had no trouble at the settlement. Beyond refusing to sell us food, they left us to ourselves. The women and children stayed in the houses, and though some of the men appeared in sight they did not, as on former occasions, enter our camp and taunt us. It was at Cedar City that the Wainwright baby died. I remember Mrs. Wainwright weeping and pleading with Laban to try to get some cow's milk. It may save the baby's life, she said, and they've got cow's milk. I saw fresh cows with my own eyes. Go on, please, Laban. It won't hurt you to try. They can only refuse. But they won't. Tell them it's for a baby, a wee little baby. Mormon women have mother's hearts. They couldn't refuse a cup of milk for a wee little baby. And Laban tried. But, as he told father afterward, he did not get to see any Mormon women. He saw only the Mormon men, who turned him away. This was the last Mormon outpost. Beyond lay the vast desert, with, on the other side of it, the dreamland I, the mythland of California. As our wagons rolled out of the place in the early morning I, sitting beside my father on the driver's seat, saw Laban give expression to his feelings. We had gone perhaps half a mile, and were topping a low rise that would sink Cedar City from view, when Laban turned his horse around, halted it, and stood up in the stirrups. Where he had halted was a new-made grave, and I knew it for the Wainwright babies, not the first of our graves since we had crossed the Wasatch Mountains. He was a weird figure of a man. Aged and lean, long-faced, hollow-checked, with matted, sunburned hair that fell below the shoulders of his buckskin shirt, his face was distorted with hatred and helpless rage. Holding his long rifle in his bridle hand, he shook his free fist at Cedar City. God's curse on all of you, he cried out. On your children, and on your babes unborn. May drought destroy your crops. May you eat sand seasoned with the venom of rattlesnakes. May the sweet water of your springs turn to bitter alkali. May. Here his words became indistinct as our wagons rattled on, but his heaving shoulders and brandishing fists attested that he had only begun to lay the curse. That he expressed the general feeling in our train was evidenced by the many women who leaned from the wagons, thrusting out gaunt forearms and shaking bony, labor-malformed fists at the last of Mormonum. A man, who walked in the sand and goaded the oxen of the wagon behind ours, laughed and waved his goad. It was unusual, that laugh, for there had been no laughter in our train for many days. Give em hell, Laban, he encouraged. Them's my sentiments. And as our train rolled on I continued to look back at Laban, standing in his stirrups by the baby's grave. Truly he was a weird figure, with his long hair, his moccasins, and fringed leggings. So old and weather-beaten was his buckskin shirt that ragged filaments here and there showed where proud fringes once had been. He was a man of flying tatters. I remember, at his waist, dangled dirty tufts of hair that, far back in the journey, after a shower of rain, were wont to show glossy black. These I knew were Indian scalps, and the sight of them always thrilled me. It will do him good. Father commended more to himself than to me. I've been looking for days for him to blow up. 
I wish he'd go back and take a couple of scalps. I volunteered. My father regarded me quizzically. Don't like the Mormons, eh, son? I shook my head and felt myself swelling with the inarticulate hate that possessed me. When I grow up, I said after a minute, I'm going gunning for them. You, Jesse, came my mother's voice from inside the wagon. Shut your mouth instanter. And to my father, you ought to be ashamed letting the boy talk on like that. Two days' journey brought us to Mountain Meadows, and here, well beyond the last settlement, for the first time we did not form the wagon circle. The wagons were roughly in a circle, but there were many gaps, and the wheels were not chained. Preparations were made to stop a week. The cattle must be rested for the real desert, though this was desert enough in all seeming. The same low hills of sand were about us, but sparsely covered with scrub brush. The flat was sandy, but there was some grass, more than we had encountered in many days. Not more than a hundred feet from camp was a weak spring that barely supplied human needs. But farther along the bottom various other weak springs emerged from the hillsides, and it was at these that the cattle watered. We made camp early that day, and because of the program to stay a week, there was a general overhauling of soiled clothes by the women, who planned to start washing on the morrow. Everybody worked till nightfall. While some of the men mended harness others repaired the frames and ironwork of the wagons. Then was much heating and hammering of iron and tightening of bolts and nuts. And I remember coming upon Laban, sitting cross-legged in the shade of a wagon, and sewing away till nightfall on a new pair of moccasins. He was the only man in our train who wore moccasins and buckskin, and I have an impression that he had not belonged to our company when it left Arkansas. Also, he had neither wife, nor family, nor wagon of his own. All he possessed was his horse, his rifle, the clothes he stood up in, and a couple of blankets that were hauled in the mason wagon. Next morning it was that our doom fell. Two days' journey beyond the last Mormon outpost, knowing that no Indians were about and apprehending nothing from the Indians on any count, for the first time we had not chained our wagons in the solid circle, placed guards on the cattle, nor set a night watch. My awakening was like a nightmare. It came as a sudden blast of sound. I was only stupidly awake for the first moments, and did nothing except to try to analyze and identify the various noises that went to compose the blast that continued without let-up. I could hear near and distant explosions of rifles, shouts and curses of men, women screaming, and children bawling. Then I could make out the thuds and squeals of bullets that hit wood and iron in the wheels and under construction of the wagon. Whoever it was that was shooting, the aim was too low. When I started to rise, my mother, evidently just in the act of dressing, pressed me down with her hand. Father, already up and about, at this stage erupted into the wagon. Out of it! he shouted. Quick! To the ground! He wasted no time. With a hook-like clutch that was almost a blow, so swift was it, he flung me bodily out of the rear end of the wagon. I had barely time to crawl out from under when father, mother, and the baby came down pell-mell where I had been. Here, Jesse! Father shouted to me, and I joined him in scooping out sand behind the shelter of a wagon wheel. We worked barehanded and wildly. Mother joined in. Go ahead and make it deeper, Jesse. Father ordered. He stood up and rushed away in the gray light, shouting commands as he ran. I had learned by now my surname. I was Jesse Fancher. My father was Captain Fancher. 
Lie down, I could hear him. Get behind the wagon wheels and burrow in the sand. Family men, get the women and children out of the wagons. Hold your fire. No more shooting. Hold your fire and be ready for the rush when it comes. Single men, join Laban at the right, Cochran at the left, and me in the center. Don't stand up. Crawl for it. But no rush came. For a quarter of an hour the heavy and irregular firing continued. Our damage had come in the first moments of surprise when a number of the early rising men were caught exposed in the light of the campfires they were building. The Indians, for Indians Laban declared them to be, had attacked us from the open, and were lying down and firing at us. In the growing light father made ready for them. His position was near to where I lay in the burrow with mother so that I heard him when he cried out. Now! All together! From left, right, and center our rifles loosed in a volley. I had popped my head up to see, and I could make out more than one stricken Indian. Their fire immediately ceased, and I could see them scampering back on foot across the open, dragging their dead and wounded with them. All was work with us on the instant. While the wagons were being dragged and chained into the circle with tongues inside, I saw women and little boys and girls flinging their strength on the wheel spokes to help. We took toll of our losses. First, and gravest of all, our last animal had been run off. Next, lying about the fires they had been building, were seven of our men. Four were dead, and three were dying. Other men, wounded, were being cared for by the women. Little Rish Hardacre had been struck in the arm by a heavy ball. He was no more than six, and I remember looking on with mouth agape while his mother held him on her lap and his father set about bandaging the wound. Little Rish had stopped crying. I could see the tears on his cheeks while he stared wonderingly at a sliver of broken bone sticking out of his forearm. Granny White was found dead in the Foxwell wagon. She was a fat and helpless old woman who never did anything but sit down all the time and smoke a pipe. She was the mother of Abby Foxwell. And Mrs. Grant had been killed. Her husband sat beside her body. He was very quiet. There were no tears in his eyes. He just sat there, his rifle across his knees, and everybody left him alone. Under father's directions the company was working like so many beavers. The men dug a big rifle pit in the center of the corral, forming a breastwork out of the displaced sand. Into this pit the women dragged bedding, food, and all sorts of necessaries from the wagons. All the children helped. There was no whimpering, and little or no excitement. There was work to be done, and all of us were folks born to work. The big rifle pit was for the women and children. Under the wagons, completely around the circle, a shallow trench was dug and an earthwork thrown up. This was for the fighting men. Laban returned from a scout. He reported that the Indians had withdrawn the matter of half a mile, and were holding a powwow. Also he had seen them carry six of their number off the field, three of which, he said, were debtors. From time to time, during the morning of that first day, we observed clouds of dust that advertised the movements of considerable bodies of mountain men. These clouds of dust came toward us, hemming us in on all sides. But we saw no living creature. One cloud of dirt only moved away from us. It was a large cloud, and everybody said it was our cattle being driven off. And our forty great wagons that had rolled over the Rockies and half across the continent stood in a helpless circle. Without cattle they could roll no farther.
At noon Laban came in from another scout. He had seen fresh Indians arriving from the south, showing that we were being closed in. It was at this time that we saw a dozen white men ride out on the crest of a low hill to the east and look down on us. That settles it, Laban said to father. The Indians have been put up to it. They're white like us, I heard Abby Foxwell complain to mother. Why don't they come in to us? They ain't whites. I piped up with a wary eye for the swoop of mother's hand. They're Mormons. That night, after dark, three of our young men stole out of camp. I saw them go. They were Will Aiden, Abel Milliken, and Timothy Grant. They are heading for Cedar City to get help. Father told mother while he was snatching a hasty bite of supper. Mother shook her head. There's plenty of Mormons within calling distance of camp, she said. If they won't help, and they haven't shown any signs, then the Cedar City ones won't either. But there are good Mormons and bad Mormons, father began. We haven't found any good ones so far. She shut him off. Not until morning did I hear of the return of Abel Milliken and Timothy Grant, but I was not long in learning. The whole camp was downcast by reason of their report. The three had gone only a few miles when they were challenged by white men. As soon as Will Aiden spoke up, telling that they were from the Fancher Company, going to Cedar City for help, he was shot down. Milliken and Grant escaped back with the news, and the news settled the last hope in the hearts of our company. The whites were behind the Indians, and the doom so long apprehended was upon us. This morning of the second day our men, going for water, were fired upon. The spring was only a hundred feet outside our circle, but the way to it was commanded by the Indians who now occupied the low hill to the east. It was close range, for the hill could not have been more than fifteen rods away. But the Indians were not good shots, evidently, for our men brought in the water without being hit. Beyond an occasional shot into camp the morning passed quietly. We had settled down in the rifle pit, and being used to rough living, were comfortable enough. Of course it was bad for the families of those who had been killed, and there was the taking care of the wounded. I was forever stealing away from mother in my insatiable curiosity to see everything that was going on, and I managed to see pretty much of everything. Inside the corral, to the south of the big rifle pit, the men dug a hole and buried the seven men and two women all together. Only Mrs. Hastings, who had lost her husband and father, made much trouble. She cried and screamed out, and it took the other women a long time to quiet her. On the low hill to the east the Indians kept up a tremendous powwowing and yelling. But beyond an occasional harmless shot they did nothing. What's the matter with the 